Okay, well, at least I remember this part, and that is I usually say something like, turn with me, if you will, to the place where this week's Torah portion begins. I'll try that. So go ahead and do it. In this case, that would be the... Um, the book of uh, Bereshit, and we're going to finish the book of Bereshit, or Genesis, this week. Chapter 47 is where we'll start, almost at the end of chapter 47. And um, it's verse 28, and it begins like this. The Parsha is called Va-Yechi, so, um, and is the first word there, Va-Yechi, and lived Yachov in the land of Mitzrayim for 17 years. So, the days of Yaakov, the total days and years of his life, were 147 years. And the time drew near that Israel must die. So he called his son Joseph, and he said unto him, If now I found favor in your sight, I pray, I pray you, put your hand under my thigh, deal kindly and truly with me, and do not bury me, he said, I pray you, in Mitzrayim or Egypt. But when I sleep with my fathers, you will carry out, uh, you'll carry me, my body, in other words, out of Egypt, and bear me in their burying place. And his son said, I will do as you have said. And then Yaakov says to his son, or he said to him, Swear unto me. Now, this is kind of interesting, and it's one of those things that uh, uh, I always uh, take note of, because this is a father who loves his son, trusts his son. Why is he making him swear? And uh, I think, now I can't prove this, is this is Markology, but we're going to see that it, it, later on it's for uh, Joseph's own good. When he is asked by Pharaoh, he's able to say, yeah, Dad made me swear. And so as a result, there's no question. Oh, yeah, you're going to go back and do what he said, whereas there might have been otherwise. So this swear unto me is, uh, uh, it appears to me at least, Joseph being given a, um, a proper understanding and a, an excuse, if you will, a reason to do exactly what his father asked him, that he would have probably wanted to do anyway. But the swearing unto him makes it a lot more sure. Okay, so it says, Israel bowed down upon the bed's head. And it came to pass after these things that someone said to Joseph, Behold, your father's sick. And then he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Note the order there. It's different than it usually is. We usually hear Ephraim and Manasseh. And one of them, one, one person, in other words, told Yaakov, and he said, Behold, your son Joseph is coming unto you. So, this time it's Israel, it says, to strengthen himself, and he sat up upon the bed. And ya- Yaakov says to Joseph, notice how it's switching back and forth. It's kind of fascinating, isn't it? Here's what he said. Uh, God Almighty, and that would be El Shaddai in this case, appeared unto me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me. And he said unto me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I'll make of you a company of peoples, and I'll give you this land to your seed after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born unto you here in the land of Mitzrayim, before I even uh, even came unto you here in Egypt, they're mine, Ephraim and Manasseh even as Reuben and Simeon shall be mine. Now, your issue, your, your, your seed, in other words, that you beget after them, they'll be mine too. They shall be called after the name of their brethren in their inheritance. So he is already seeing ahead to what it is we're going to see in the next book in Exodus and uh, the rest of the Torah having to do with the inheritance of the twelve sons of Israel. Now, as for me, he says, when I came from Padan, Rachel died unto me in the land of Canaan in the way, uh, when there was still some way to come unto Ephrat, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrat. This, this place, as you probably know, is called Bethlehem, the house of bread, and uh, we know it as the birthplace of um, yeah, the Mashiach as well. Not, by the way, at this time of year. Then it says, Israel beheld Joseph's sons. 
So the two sons are there. Israel notices them, it sounds like, and he says, this is a an amazing line. Okay, think about this. Whose are these? Now, he's just finished talking about it. Don't you think he knows? Why would he ask the question this way? There's obviously more going on here. Whose are these? And um, I have, uh, over the course of years, read this, and I'm thinking, well, it could be a rhetorical question, but, you know, honestly, if I had to uh, to say prophetically how would we read this, I can't help but think he's asking the question that still matters today. Whose are these really? If we, in fact, and most of the English-speaking peoples of the world would be understood to be descendants of Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, that's uh, that's one of those things where uh, there's lots of uh, debate, but ultimately, I think most of the scholarly stuff that I've read tends to make me think this is true. And uh, between Britain and America, you essentially have the, the two major places in the world where it looks like we have these descendants. And um, it's a fair question, isn't it? Especially today. Whose are these really? Now, Joseph said then to his father, These are my sons, whom Elohim has given me here. And he said, Well, bring them to me, I pray you, and I'll bless them. Now it says, The eyes of Israel were dim because of his age, so that he couldn't see. And he brought them near unto him, and he kissed them, and he embraced them. And Israel, it said, said unto Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, and lo, Elohim has let me see your seed as well. Joseph then brought them out from between his knees. He fell down on his face to the earth, and he took the both of them, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right. So they're facing each other. The two boys are on the side that Joseph thinks puts the firstborn in position to have his dad put his hand on the firstborn's right, uh, his right hand on the firstborn's head. He brought them near. Israel says, stretched out his right hand, and he laid it upon Ephraim's head, the younger one, who was, uh, and he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands wittingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. So what is uh, his father doing? This man who can't really see, he's crossing his hands one over the other to put the proper hand on what he perceives is the proper son. And he blessed Joseph, and he said, The Elohim before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the Elohim who's been my shepherd all my life long unto this day, the uh, Malach, the angel, the messenger, who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and let my name be named in them, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So he is giving them the blessing of the patriarchs and of the Creator through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and, well, at this point, Israel. Now, when Joseph saw that his father was putting his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it uh, displeased him. And he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head, put it onto the firstborn's head, Manasseh. And Joseph said unto his father, No, no, wrong, Dad, not so, my father. Uh, For this is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. His father refused, and he said, I know it, my son, I know it. He too shall become a people, and he also shall be great. How be it? His younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. Now, at this point, it's worth pointing out, we know that, in fact, the lines of the uh, descendants of the northern kingdom, in other words, the kings, are called the kings of Ephraim. They come through the secondborn, but the one here who is getting the blessing of the firstborn, his right hand, uh, uh, Yaakov, or Israel's right hand, on his head. 
So he knows and he sees. He blessed them that day and he said, By you shall Israel bless, saying, Elohim make you as Ephraim, note the order, and as Manasseh. And he did. He set Ephraim before Manasseh. And now it says, Israel said unto Joseph, Behold, I'm dying here. Uh, but Elohim will be with you and bring you back into the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brethren, which I took out of the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. So let's let's think about that one for a second. There are 12 sons, and um, as we are going to find out, we're going to see a repetition in here. Uh, Reuben has essentially blown it when it comes to the blessing of the firstborn. Meanwhile, Joseph who uh, arguably has been the favorite son, certainly has done some things to make him worthy of note at this point. He now has two sons. They're being grafted in. There's an interesting turn of phrase. And uh, essentially, Joseph, because there are two sons, each of whom will get a regular blessing, that would be the way that would be done anyway if Joseph himself got a double portion. So in other words, grafting in Manasseh and Ephraim, both of whom are going to get a portion, is kind of like putting Joseph in the place of the firstborn and giving him a double portion. So I hope that all makes sense. Uh, by the way, the way that would work in inheritance would be that if there were, uh, if, if um, you know, Yaakov had X number of sheep, and goats and camels and all that kind of stuff, what you would do is say, okay, you got 12 sons, add one, that would be 13, and divide them into 13 portions and give the firstborn two of those 13 portions. He gets that double portion. All right, so now Yaakov calls his sons, and he said, Get yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall befall you in the end of days. And I always kind of take note of that, scratch my head a little bit, and say, that's interesting, because doesn't sound like that's actually what he tells them. There are certainly elements here that uh, that would qualify, but a lot of this is uh, just later on, as opposed to the end of days. It would seem, but maybe he's right, and we don't know yet, because we're not there yet, but we do seem to be close. All right, assemble yourselves, he said, and, and hearken uh, here, you sons of Yaakov. Notice the phrasing here, too. Hearken, you sons of Yaakov, or here, actually it's here, uh, that's the... Um, the uh, um, I believe it's the O-ear root, right? Uh, and, and hearken, there's the Shema root, hearken unto Israel, your father. So listen with your ears, listen with your spirit, with your ruach, your heart. Starting with uh, the firstborn. Reuben, he says, you're my firstborn, my might, the first fruits of my strength, the excellence of dignity and the excellency of power. Now, here comes the but, right? Unstable as water, you don't have the excellency because you went up to your father's bed. He's not happy about that. Uh, he defiled it with Bilhah. Then you defiled it. You went up to my couch. So no double portion for him. Meanwhile, it says, Simeon and Levi are brethren. Weapons of violence, their kinship. Now remember the situation here. This is the, uh, the unfortunate incident with Shechem when they basically took it upon themselves to kill every man in the place. And uh, obviously, uh, Dad was not happy then. He still isn't. Let not my soul come into their council. Under their assembly, let my glory not be united, for in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they hewed oxen. Cursed be their anger. Not the boys, not the men at this point, but their anger. Cursed be their anger, because it was fierce. Their wrath, because it was cruel. I will divide them in Yaakov and scatter them in Israel. Judah, 
Number four, you shall your brethren praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Uh, what is he seeing? Judah is the progenitor of the line of kings. We've seen this being developed, and now it's obvious uh, Israel knows it, and he is proclaiming it. Judah's a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion and as a lioness. Who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. As long as men come to Shiloh, and unto him shall the obedience of the peoples be. Binding his foal under the vine, and his ass's colt under the choice vine, he washes his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk. And I'll admit, that's another one of those that um, uh, I scratch my head about and say, huh, I, uh, I don't understand it yet, but I, uh, I tend to think perhaps we will. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall be ashore for ships, and his flank will be upon Zidon. Issachar is a large-boned ass crouching, crouching down between the sheepfolds. So uh, a large-boned ass. He, he is a beast of burden, uh, something that sounds reliable and uh, steadfast. For he saw a resting place. It was good. The land that it was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant under task work. Again, the implication, uh, Issachar is the one you turn to when things need doing. Dan, the word here means what he is uh, just being told. Dan will be a Dan of his people as one of the tribes of Israel. So far, so good. Then this one. Hmm. Dan, it says, shall be a serpent. That word there uh, is Nachash. That's the same word we see used in Genesis 3. He'll be a nachash in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heel so that his rider falls backward. And then this is put in there. Interesting. I wait, um, and it's uh, le Yeshua Teka. Oh, we recognize the root word, your salvation. Yeshua Teka, O Yahuwah. Hmm. And uh, I guess it's worth pointing out as well, um, of all the places where there is an interesting parallel here, it's the end of Revelation, where we see the, the 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. But wait a minute, counting Ephraim and Manasseh, there are 13. That's the one place in the book where, in fact, the 12 are counted. Ephraim and Manasseh are included, and what does that mean? Dan is not listed. So at the point where the 144,000 are gathered, Dan is not there. I wait for your salvation, O Yahuwah. Does that, does that fit? Gad, which is the word there, means a troop. A troop shall troop upon him, but he shall troop upon their heel. As for Asher, his bread shall be fat, and he shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a hind let loose. He giveth goodly words. Joseph, Yosef, is a fruitful vine or bough. A fruitful vine by a fountain, its branches run over the wall. Now, what's interesting is this is one of those places where there are some words here which are rendered in different English translations utterly differently. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's another one of those head scratchers. Um, it, is, it is often said, it's, we're told in, in the story here, that Joseph was an attractive, a good-looking man. And this would uh, perhaps explain why he had that problem with Pharaoh's wife. She thought he was hot stuff. But um, 
the other renderings kind of tend to focus on that aspect. And again, it's we go from a fruitful vine, branches running over the wall, to something very different. Uh, a son of grace is Yosef, says another rendering. A son of grace to the eyes. Girls mounted the walls. In other words, to see him. So notice that two very, very different understandings here. The archers, though it says, have dealt bitterly with him and shot at him and hated him. But his bow abode firm or even perpetual. And the arms of his hands were made supple by the hands of the mighty one of Yaakov. From there, from the shepherd, the stone of Israel, even by the Elohim of your father, who shall help you, and by the Almighty, who shall bless you with blessings of Hashemayim above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. That's that's quite a blessing. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my progenitors unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Yosef and on the crown of the head of the prince among his brethren. So, again, another thing that we're seeing here, uh, Joseph certainly at this point is uh, the uh, acknowledged leader of the family. He is, after all, the number two man in uh, in Egypt at this point. And uh, that is one of the things that's being acknowledged here, uh, the blessings that go with this. But if you understand this idea of what we're going to see with the, the two whoring wives, the two kingdoms, the two sticks that Ezekiel talks about that are not yet joined, uh, this split that happens in the kingdom after the time of Solomon. And I can't help but think, as you know, that is an extremely important understanding and development. It, it literally has shaped all of history since then. The fact that we have these two whoring wives, two whoring kingdoms, and um, I have, uh, as you know, the, the metaphor that is uh, throughout Scripture is of whoring, harlotry. Now, that's a more polite old English term, but the whoring gets the point across because yod heh vav is not happy about it. And uh, what I have noted, and I don't think it's uh, it's even arguable, really, the descendants of those two whoring wives are, uh, and and we're told this in both Ezekiel and Jeremiah, Ahola in the north and Aholaba in the south, a.k.a. Israel in the north or Samaria, and uh, Judah in the south or Judea, you'll see it sometimes. And what are they? The lines of the kings of Ephraim in the north or Judah in the south. And, of course, um, sometimes they're also referred to as uh, the uh, the northern kingdom, as the kingdom of Joseph. So um, he would be the crown of the head of the prince among his brethren. All right, Benjamin, it says, Benjamin, son of my right hand, is a wolf that ravens. In the morning he devours the prey, at evening he divides the spoil. All of these, it says, are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is what their father spoke unto them and blessed them. Every one according to his blessing, he blessed them. Now, Rashi has an interesting observation about that terminology there. Uh, in English, it's not quite as clear, but I guess uh, it, it says, um, well, his, his take is, when you look at the Hebrew, uh, what you're seeing is that there is a there are two blessings here, in other words. Everyone according to his blessing, he blessed them, and he spoke unto them, and he blessed them. In other words, the repetition, there is a unique individual blessing for each of the twelve tribes, and there is, if you will, a corporate blessing that applies to all of them. After all, they are all sons of Joseph, I mean, sons of uh, Israel. And he charged them, and he said unto them, I'm to be gathered unto my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. And that cave that's in the field of Machpelah, before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought um, 
with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a possession. As a matter of fact, it's still a possession for a burying place. And there he says they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rivka his wife. There I buried Leah. The field and the cave that's therein, which was purchased from the children of Heth. So he has now sworn his son Joseph, take me there. And all of his sons have been told, yep, this is where I intend to go. So everybody knows. Now, when Joseph, when, when Yaakov made an end of charging his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed, and he expired. And he was gathered unto his people. So, chapter 50, and as we literally bring the book to a close, we're going to see Joseph fell upon his father's face, and he wept upon him, and he kissed him. Remember what Joseph was told by the Creator? Your son Joseph will put his hand upon your eyes. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father, and they did. They embalmed Israel. Forty days were fulfilled for him, so are fulfilled the days of embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days, threescore and ten. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke unto the house of Pharaoh. And he said, now notice, this is where the thing that uh, he was sworn to do comes into play. If now I have found favor in your eyes, speak, I pray you, in the ears of Pharaoh, and say the following. My father made me swear, saying, Lo, I'm dying. In my grave which I have digged for me in the land of Canaan, there you shall go bury me. Now therefore, he says, let me go, I pray you, and bury my father, and I'll come back. I will come back. He does not have to worry. Pharaoh does not have to worry that Joseph won't come back. Pharaoh said, All right, go up and bury your father. Ah, listen, according to what he made you swear. So Pharaoh says, okay, this is important stuff. Dad made him swear. I'm not going to stand in the way of that. Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went all of the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, all the elders of the land of Mithraim, and all of the house of Joseph. So this is quite an entourage. His brethren, his father's house, only their little ones and their flocks and their herds, they left behind in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. This was quite a, like I said, quite an entourage. They came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan. And there they wailed with a great and sore wailing. They made a mourning for his father for seven days. Now, when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the floor of Atad, they said, wow, <laughs> this is something else. This is a grievous mourning to these Egyptians. Wherefore, the name of the place was called Abel Mitzrayim, which is beyond the river, the river Jordan. His sons did unto him according to as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan. They buried him there in the cave of the field of Machpelah, which Abraham bought with the field for possession of a burying place from Ephron the Hittite in front of Mamre. And then Joseph returned to Mitzrayim. He and his brethren, and all that had, uh, went up with him to bury his father after he had finished burying his father. And when Joseph's brethren saw that now their father was dead, I guess it started to sink in. And uh, now they're having um, second thoughts, concerns. They said, hey, you know what might happen now? Maybe that Joseph has just been playing, playing nice with us while Dad was alive. Now, though, Joseph may hate us, and he will fully requite unto us all the evil which we did to him. The boys still don't quite get it. They don't understand that they have been forgiven. We deserve it. He's going to bring it on. So they sent a message to Joseph, and they kind of twisted the truth a bit, it sounds like. And they said, you know what? Your dad said, uh, your father, notice, not our father, your father commanded us, commanded before he died, saying the following. So you shall say unto Joseph, forgive, I pray you now. 
the transgressions of your brethren and their sin. Uh, for what they did to you was evil. And now we pray you, forgive the transgression of the servants of the Elohim of your father. And when Joseph heard this, he wept when they spoke to him. His brethren also went and they fell down before his face. And they said, behold, we are your bondmen. We will be servants. Remember, this was exactly what they were willing to do or thought they were trapped into doing so long before. Joseph said unto them, do not fear not. Come on, man. Am I in the place of Elohim? Now, as for you, yes, you did mean evil. We've had this discussion. But Elohim meant it for good to bring it to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. This was an important part of his plan. So, therefore, fear not. You know, don't be afraid, guys. I will sustain you and your little ones. And he comforted them. And he spoke kindly unto them. So he could have been angry. In fact, he was sad. And he, uh, he reiterated what he had already told them. I wasn't kidding you before. This was about the plan of Elohim. I have forgiven you. I still forgive you. And I, in fact, will sustain you and your little ones. Joseph then dwelt in Mitzrayim, he and his father's house. And Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. And finally, it says, Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, but Elohim will surely remember you. And this is an interesting one. It could be translated, the the Hebrew here as, will surely uh, attend or visit you. In other words, he will not forget. There's an understanding. It looks like Joseph has has an understanding of what's going to happen, too. Elohim will surely, um, again, that word is not zakar, attend you, bring you up out of this land, into the land, under the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to our father, to Yaakov. So Joseph took an oath of the Benai Israel, and he said, Elohim will surely remember you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. Now this is going to be something that, uh, as we're going to see uh, hundreds of years hence, Moses will accomplish. And finally, the last verse in the book. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And with that, folks, um, the book and the story of the beginning, Bereshit, ends. And remember the traditional blessing, and I think this is appropriate, Chazak, Chazak, Venit, Chazak. Be strong and of good courage. And that is essentially um, not just good advice, but especially now. So come out of her, oh my people, for the time has come to judge Babylon. Hey folks, Boker Tov, Shabbat Shalom, welcome back. Good morning. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things that are related to the last Parsha, which is called Vayechi, in the um, in the story of the book of Genesis. This has to do, of course, with the death first of uh, Yaakov, and uh, then later on his son, uh, Joseph. And as we know, too, I guess kind of leaping ahead, since the next book will be uh, Exodus, We're going to see um, a couple hundred years elapse, and um, now all of a sudden these people that were being taken care of under Joseph somehow or other managed to become slaves. Uh, When there arose a new pharaoh, a new king who did not know Joseph, 
And, uh, gee, isn't that kind of the, the story of human history? That's really one of the places where I want to begin today is with this idea of cycles. We saw the cycles there in Egypt, uh, this idea of the seven uh, fat years and the seven lean years, uh, reflecting a, a cycle that was related to something that was outside the control of the people on the planet, kind of like what we're seeing today, even though I'm sure that... Uh, uh, had they had the technology, and uh, had they not had somebody with the integrity of a pharaoh in there, they might have tried to lie about that one, too. But there are so many things in this portion, in other words, that um, that point to elements that we can see parallels with, but maybe it's just not quite clear. That's kind of one of the things I like about some of the prophetic elements in Scripture. And uh, let's just go right to the, the heart of one of those, where ultimately it's the, uh, it's the story of Jacob um, blessing his sons. And uh, the blessings for the the twelve tribes, uh, some of them seem fairly obvious uh, with respect to people like uh, Judah, for example. Judah is a lion's whelp. Uh, from the prey, my son, you've gone up, and uh, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, as long as men come to Shiloh. Hmm. And unto him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, as we know, there are lots of uh, questions about that one. I, I read some stuff here in the last couple of days about... Um, uh, the uh, the standard uh, uh, Judaic teaching, the rabbinic teaching about this, that uh, yeah, well, that happened up until the point where the um, the scepter departed and it went to the uh, the Sanhedrin instead, which was coincidentally right around the time of Yeshua. Uh, they won't draw that connection, and um, that may or may not be the case because certainly one of the things we know is that um, really that scepter is still there because it comes through. The kingdom, which is not a kingdom at this point on earth, we'll see. So I guess what I'm suggesting there is, wow, a lot of smoke around that one. And people will look at it, as you see, the two whoring houses we've been talking about, the whoring house of the north, Ahola, uh, Israel, that essentially says the king has come. The southern one says he hasn't, or um, maybe he'll come at some point. Both ultimately have been deceived because if the whore church is uh, saying that the law is done away with because Jesus did away with it, well, they got the wrong one. And uh, meanwhile, the southern kingdom didn't notice that he was there. His mama never called him Jesus. He didn't do away with the Torah. He was, in fact, the Torah made flesh. But they, too, missed it. So one of the things that's kind of fascinating about some of these prophecies and um, the elements of the the 12 tribes here, and and we're going to talk a little bit about that today, is uh, how there is, um, I guess you'd say, maybe the right word is obscuration. Up until it's high, it's only uh, clear in hindsight. Uh, here's another one that I've mentioned. Uh, that um, uh, repeatedly in Scripture we will see the references and even other uh, dr- dramatic and direct references to the twelve tribes in prophecy. And uh, they're slightly different. Generally, some of the characteristics of the tribes uh, tend to uh, to maintain themselves. Issachar is a uh, is an easy one, a large boned ass, uh, and uh, he uh, bowed his shoulder to bear. In other words, he is a servant, reliable and steadfast. Uh, we see in places like Chronicles where the men of Issachar, uh, who had many wives, were told in one place, uh, also in fact knew the times and the seasons, so they knew what Israel should do. So there aren't a lot of references to things like this, but but they're there. And if we look for them, we'll find them. Uh, Dan is the one, of course, that I find to be somewhat fascinating because while the uh, tribes are generally listed, and you'll usually find 12 of them that are mentioned whenever it comes to uh, uh, when they go out in battle and so forth, and, and it's not always the same 12, because if they're going to go into battle, generally, once we see after the time of Moses, Levi is not named among them. 
because uh, the Levites, uh, which end up being the line from which the Kohanim come, they don't go out to battle. So we get a different set of 12 tribes there that exclude Levi. When we get to Revelation, this is the point, the tribe of Dan, among the 144,000, 12,000 of each, is not named. And um, I saw some discussion online that I think is kind of interesting, too. Certain people, um, you know, if the questions come up, we can talk about them. I haven't seen the videos, and I'm not familiar with the genealogy of uh, uh, people like uh, Jared Kushner and so forth, although I'm not a big fan, uh, regardless. Um, but the question is, is he of the tribe of Dan and, and so forth? Well, who knows? Um, maybe maybe there will be some commentary on that score. But um, all of these things are at least interesting to think about. Now, what I want to talk about are some of the other things that are related to all of this. And, um, well, let me, let me start with this one. As the book of Genesis ends, we have the, uh, the sons of Yaakov, the sons of Israel, more properly. And uh, even during this last um, event of his life, we see Israel, Jew, um, uh, Jacob, described both with both names almost back and forth, like there is a battle going on here. And I think that's part of what we're still seeing, uh, if you will, between the spiritual and the physical, or those who uh, understand their destiny and uh, have a prophetic inclination, and, and those that don't, and, and so forth. But uh, it seems to me, this is kind of the 10,000-foot view anyway, that's, that's usually the altitude I was flying at when I had the plane, um, is that w- what we have here is a legal inversion with the people that would be called Hebrews that came to Mitzrayim, and then somehow, during the time of Moshe, a while later, they end up in bondage. So what was it we heard in the last Torah portion? Well, you got all these people in Mitzrayim, the uh, Egyptians, if you will, that uh, first off, they, um, they have to uh, sell their uh, money, their silver. They trade that during the early part of the famine for food so that they can survive. Well, then they run out of silver. And um, now the money has failed because we ain't got none. So now what? Well, let's see. What can we what can we sell? We got animals. We can't feed them anyway. So we'll sell the animals and some of those kinds of things that are, uh, if you will, uh, property that's movable. We'll sell those. Well, okay. Famine continues. What about the next year? Uh oh. Now we're now we're in a world of hurt here. What do we got left? Well, just our bodies and our land. So they sell that too to Pharaoh. And uh, then they become indentured servants. This is uh, arguably one of the first major beginnings of feudalism. Uh, the Middle Ages brought that to a, a real uh, fore, and we're seeing that again, this idea of people being bound to the land, feudal serfs. You don't own anything, but you'll be happy, or at least that's what they tell you, right? Does this sound kind of familiar? And what was it that was different about that form of feudalism during Pharaoh? Answer, no more than 20%. Okay, you get to keep four fifths of the uh, produce from your land, right? You go, you go crops. Pharaoh gets twenty uh, percent. That's his cut off the top. Uh, IRS wouldn't be at all happy with that, right? And um, the meanwhile, the people are at least relatively free compared to most of the modern slaves of um, technical, technocratic, bureaucratic, or other kinds of uh, tyranny that demand far, far more of their slaves than a mere 20%. I mean, I think most Americans would be thrilled, except for those that are invading, with uh, only half being taken in the form of taxes of all kinds. So um, what am I getting at here? Well, the Hebrews, when they came into the land, they were told by Joseph, uh, that's part of the end of the story, it was, it was a little bit poignant and sad, because he, um, he, he thought they didn't get it. They, they figured that now that uh, Dad is dead, uh, he's going to lower the boom on them. And he says, no, no, I'm going to take care of you. I will protect you. I will provide for you. And if you think about it, the Hebrews, who were, what, strangers in a strange land, uh, they came in, they were invited. And so, in fact, they were legal 
um, immigrants in the land of Mitzrayim. Pharaoh welcomed them to come. But over time, when a new Pharaoh arose that did not know Joseph, they become slaves. So we get a, a legal to um, illegal or a slave kind of a mentality, an inversion there. So those who were not slaves became slaves. And uh, interesting, during the time of this uh, severe bondage, uh, this hard labor in uh, Mitzrayim, we don't see any reference to, hey, you guys get to keep the land and you only have to pay 20%. They were worse kinds of slaves even than those who were uh, had sold themselves and their lands to Pharaoh. So uh, if you're thinking that I'm suggesting that there are some parallels there, yeah, I do think that's kind of a fascinating story too. Well, what have we seen in the United States in a roughly similar time frame? Uh, those who came here seeking to breathe free and who uh, escaped some of the um, the persecution of those who actually followed Scripture and believed in the right to worship freely and, and so forth. They, were, uh, they came to this new land seeking something very different. They were, in fact, free. They established a constitution based on those self-evident truths. There is a creator. Our creator gave us unalienable rights, rights that cannot be leaned by any earthly government of mere men. And we're going to even put a Bill of Rights in place to protect that? Well, it lasted for a while. Gee, just like it did with Joseph. And now here we are, slaves. And that was predicted and, and warned about by the founders in a land that their forefathers conquered and made free and put in place the best they could um, some laws that were based on the concept of men who were obedient to the Creator. Well, when the men no longer were obedient to the Creator and we became a nation of uh, men and not of law, here we are in another form of bondage that is, in fact, um, even if most Americans are still ignorant of it because they don't, they don't even remotely know their own history, they certainly don't know Scripture, and they don't recognize the parallels here, but um, in a lot of respects, they are no less slaves than those who were in uh, ancient Mitzrayim or Egypt were, or, in fact, those who were in the, uh, the cotton fields in the south, because, um, well, they were bound to... Um, ask yourself the question... If, a, if, if an American wage slave escapes to, say, uh, some island in the Caribbean, does Big Brother believe you still owe taxes? Will they extradite you? If they can, they'll take you back and they'll take your stuff. How's that? Uh, can you get a certificate of manumission from Big Brother? Well, I guess if your name is uh, Hunter and you, uh, you, know, you do a little hoeing and, and cracks uh, snorting, or whatever they call it, uh, you can, in fact, have a degree of freedom, right? The sons are free, says Yeshua, but uh, not the slaves. So I guess what I'm suggesting here is, if you step back and you look at all of this, you can't help but see what I describe as a series of cycles. Uh, cycles that are, as um, people like uh, Martin Armstrong point out, there are economic cycles, there are political cycles, there are uh, cycles that we see in physics and in orbits of planets and in climate change, from warm to cold and the 11-year sunspot cycle. And, uh, you know, just about everything in the universe, because that's the way the Creator made us, and He made the uh, economic situation, and He made uh, literally the entire universe. Cycles upon cycles, wheels within wheels is one of the ways we see it in Ezekiel. But um, what we see, and part of the reason for some of this confusion, and, and I'm deliberately uh, kind of uh, letting this, uh, this confusion reign just for a bit, because this is the world we're in, folks. And what we don't recognize is that when the cycles don't all line up, 
Uh, if there's an economic cycle that's moving one way, while there's a cycle in, say, commodities or farming or in climate that's moving in the other direction, that can maybe mitigate some of the effects or change certain things and might even impact different kinds of cycles that we don't even understand that are longer term. And because the cycles have different wavelengths or different periods, in other words, some of them are uh, annual cycles, right, winter, spring, summer, and fall. Others are longer than that. There are seven-year cycles. There's a well-known economic cycle that you'll see, Kondratiev wave and others, that lasts about a human lifetime. And between these cycles, we get boom and bust periods. And typically about every 70 or 80 years, we get a major economic depression. Uh, isn't that ironic? And, uh, you know, how I used to explain it when I first started doing radio was to say what happens is it requires all the people who, who know better, who made the mistakes first time around, to die so that now the same mistakes can get made again. And sometimes the cycles get worse and worse because they make the mistakes worse and worse, too. And that's essentially what we're seeing. Uh, what I'm describing, in other words, is also what economists call a super cycle and even a grand super cycle. So there are cycles of cycles, and we get um, big depressions, little depressions, the Great Depression. And I can't help but think that when this next one happens, some of it is prophesied, a lot of it is prophesied in Scripture, we're going to see the grand super cycle, perhaps the biggest economic collapse in human history. Why? Well, we've got the biggest economic bubble, the biggest debt bubble, the biggest uh, freedom uh, collapse, the biggest change in so many respects, on so many levels, in human history. So all of these things are, I guess, where I want to begin today as we, as we talk about this. I don't intend to go through all of the, uh, the, 12, the 12 tribes, because um, some of the prophecies are, um, are kind of obvious. Others are just a little bit obscure. But it ends with this, in um, the end of chapter 49, where it says in verse 28, All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is how it is that their father, uh, Yaakov, in other words, spoke to them and blessed them. So, says Rashi, that is a unified blessing, a blessing for all of them, all of the 12 tribes. Uh, these things are going to befall you. Well, what, what do we know? Well, the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. You will inherit the land. All of those things are blessings for, in fact, all the 12 tribes, and we see that. They did go into the land, and uh, they never did exactly what they were supposed to, so not all of the blessings, the borders and the boundaries were, uh, that were promised have ever been achieved. And uh, they obviously broke into two uh, separate kingdoms and uh, then were scattered and so forth. But certainly we saw a lot of this that was prophesied come to pass. And then we see the second part of verse 28 where it says, Everyone according to his blessing, he blessed them. So clearly, and we see this play out through the rest of Scripture, clearly there are some real differences between the blessings of the 12 tribes. Like I've mentioned, Dan doesn't show up for whatever reason. We'll find out. Um, in, uh, in that prophecy of the 144,000 in Revelation. Uh, on the other hand, obviously Judah is going to be the line of kings of uh, ultimately the southern kingdom, but before that, he is the line through which David comes. He is, in fact, the line of Messiah through Solomon and so forth. Um, we also see the northern kingdom, uh, the sons of Joseph, Ephraim, the swap here, the firstborn uh, being replaced, and it and then becomes, uh, um, well, Ephraim is the secondborn son, but effectively the line of the kings of the north, that would be later Israel, and uh, sometimes it's referred to as Joseph, of course, because both sons came through Joseph. So all of these elements are things that we can see, and if you do a search, just a word search on some of these tribes, you'll find some fascinating comparisons. Um, since then, this is kind of where I want to spend at least a minute or two, uh, there was a book by Yair Davidi called, uh, I believe it was just called The Tribes, 
and it's kind of fascinating. He is among a number of scholars, and it uh, looks to me like what he did uh, is consistent with what a number of scholars will point out and say, hey, you know, we, we were told, we're told in um, uh, well Deuteronomy by Moshe and by literally all of the other prophets that you guys are going to fall into uh, idolatry and you are going to be exiled. You will be scattered. Uh, this is uh, also called the diaspora. As a matter of fact, more than one of them uh, in history. And uh, in these places, right, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue because he was a Jew. So we saw what happened in Portugal. We saw what happened in uh, southern uh, Europe, in Italy, and in Spain. And uh, lots and lots of people that were scattered. And they ended up coming over to the Americas. There are um, all kinds of fascinating histories of families that uh, some of us here that live in the southwest have seen. Uh, I have noted and, and first saw people talking about this, oh, at least a couple decades ago. It's interesting to me how many families now are starting to know this but didn't know it. If you have Spanish surnamed people, and remember the time of the conquistadors and a lot of stuff, and obviously there are uh, some good news and some very bad news associated with the history, again, the cycles at play. But you'll find that there are tons and tons of Spanish surnames, Martinez, Gonzalez, Ramirez, um, that have an easy or easy ending on them. And a lot of these families are said to be of Sephardic origin. These are people that were part of this exile, this greater diaspora. Many of them came over, just like some of the, uh, the families from Ephraim, um, later settled into North America and um, places like um, uh, Massachusetts and from Virginia and so forth. Well, in the uh, southern areas, you have a lot more of the, the people that came through the Spanish settlements that have these other names, and they were probably um, many, many, many of them Sephardic Jews, but remember, there was a lot of persecution during this time. That's why they were here anyway, so they don't know it. And it's fascinating to me. I've had uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of conversations with people that have these surnames. I, uh, I don't know if I'd hazard a guess. Maybe half of them know. About half of them didn't. But you'll hear this from those that do. Oh, yeah, that's why my grandma used to have this funny little box that was on the front door. And that's why Grandma always used to do certain things on Saturday. And um, why, in, for example, Spanish, Sabado is the name for the seventh day of the week. Does anybody else see where Sabado might have some relationship to Sabbath? So, yeah, these cultural pointers, uh, they're there. And they're obscured sometimes. We don't necessarily recognize them. But I guess what I'm suggesting here as we go through some of this today, uh, we're going to see a lot of these pieces, perhaps, as the smoke clears, start to um, begin to fall into place. Um, like I said, more and more people that have these surnames and are um, becoming more and more aware of their heritage and the fact that they may have Sephardic or uh, that uh, line of uh, Jewish understanding. And it explains why uh, so many of their family traditions are what they are. Uh, in America, you'll hear things like spring cleaning. We have this time of Thanksgiving, which um, most folks, even though they may get obscured with various uh, tyrannical presidents and, and so forth, we had good ones and bad ones, but um, uh, George Washington was one of the first to suggest a day of Thanksgiving, as you probably have heard. And um, it's often said that Thanksgiving is directly related to, to what? Sukkot, a time of genuine Thanksgiving and uh, symbolic of the wedding feast and certainly right out of Scripture and so forth. So, uh, again, much here that is interesting and that we, um, we can pay attention to. And if we don't even see some of the clear elements of it, maybe as things begin to play out, we will start to get um, a bit more of a clue on that. Um, so, let me just, I'll introduce it with just, 
you know, as I summarize all of that, if you look at this idea of the tribes, the 12 tribes and the prophecies, and we know that they have been scattered. Uh, as you know, I am a, a real big proponent of the understanding that there were two kingdoms, north and south, Ahola and Aholaba, and they were divided after the time of King Solomon. And they became, I think this is obvious and pretty much undeniable, they became literally those lost tribes in the north, and of those arose the whore church. It turns out that the whore church was already there. That was the reason why they were scattered in the first place. And they hung on to so many of those ultimately pagan traditions. Traditions. You got your Yule logs. You got your Ishtar bunnies. You name it, folks. There's a whole lot of stuff that the, the whore church later said, well, we'll just make up something. We'll Christianize these pagan things and we'll say, come on in. You don't have to uh, really convert to ex-Chianity. Uh, we'll just paganize this religion that was once called the Way. And, uh, you know, even the word Christo, if you look it up, uh, Christo is, uh, is a generic term. There's Christos here, Christos there, Christos, Christos everywhere. Yeshua said, beware, there'll be a whole bunch of them saying, you know, here are Christ, there are Christ, don't be fooled. In Matthew 24, yeah, I paraphrased it a bit. But ultimately, um, what are we saying? Uh, this is exactly what I've been saying. If the Horde Church says that Jesus did away with the law, they got the wrong guy. It's clear that was the point of Scripture having outlined for us the characteristics of the Mashiach. Check out Deuteronomy 7, chapter 12, chapter 13, for starters, and so many others. As I point out over and over again, Yeshua's very first public address, Matthew 5, he says, I don't think for a second I came to change, do away with the Torah or the prophets. Not at all. Not one yoder tittle will pass, so long as heaven and earth still exist. And you'll hear the whore church and others that just can't handle that say, oh, no, no, that's not what he meant. Well, you mean you're calling him a liar? If he did away with the law, not only is he not the Mashiach, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. See, we can't have it both ways. So we either have to accept that he said what he meant, meant what he said, and did what he said he was going to do. Isn't that the primary message of Scripture? Or he is a fake. Well, guess what, folks? If we study Scripture, it's undeniable. He is the way, the truth, the life. He came to do exactly what he said he was going to do. He did it. Uh, have you at this time come to regather the lost tribes? The answer was, well, no. They're still scattered. They're still out there in exile. That's us. Some of us are beginning to realize it, just like so many of the Sephardics may begin to realize their heritage. Some of us are starting to realize, uh, you know, do we know which tribe we're from? I know people are, are looking and trying to figure it out. Am I of the tribe of Issachar? Am I of the tribe of, of um, Naphtali or Benjamin? Um, Paul was a tribe of Benjamin. He knew it. Well, maybe we'll figure it out. Maybe we'll get told once we're in the land. But uh, in the meanwhile, I suspect that the real truth is a lot of us probably have more than one of those bloodlines, maybe most of them at this point. How much does it matter? Well, because we're told, too, if we will walk in obedience, we can and should be and will be grafted in. So uh, I'm going to suggest that there is a lot of truth here and a lot of things that um, we see through a glass darkly. I read that somewhere, too. And uh, we need to figure some of these things out, but more of them will become more and more clear over time. So for now, I think, at least, it's enough just to kind of study this. And what I find is every year, every cycle, as we go through the Torah cycle, I will reread some of the stuff that I've read for, who knows, uh, 10, 20, uh, or more, 30, 40 times, and begin to say, wow, I hadn't seen this before, but now it makes sense. Why? Because other cycles are playing out and other things are showing themselves to be true. And, uh, you know, particularly when cycles add constructively, they call it constructive interference. In other words, we get this peak 
of multiple cycles. We had rogue waves coming ashore in California uh, this week. Big cycles combining with little ones, and uh, wow, clear the beach. Well, that's kind of where we are, too. So more of this will become clear, just as at the same time, I think we're going to see more turbulence as well. <laughs> and as I said that, I couldn't help but think, uh, you know, I, I used to fly all the time from the front range of Colorado over here to the uh, the western slope where we're, nat- we're now. And um, we would cross the Continental Divide. And in the winter, you get this phenomenon where there's a westerly flow before they diverted the jet stream with uh, all the geoengineering. But there's a predominantly westerly flow. And when it goes over high rocks... It's just like a wave crashing ashore over an offshore reef. You get these huge breakers, and they're called the mountain wave. And um, it was fascinating to me because um, a lot of times you could fly it, you would see certain clouds. Now, I'm not going to get too nerdy here. I'll do this quickly. Uh, one is called a standing lenticular alto cumulus, or slack. And I can look out the window today. Well, today it's clear. But a lot of times you see those slacks. They're lens-shaped clouds. They mark the wave. And um, there's another cloud that you'll sometimes see at the top. It's called a rotor. And rotors are downright deadly. And rotors have been known to sink, take the wings off of great big transport aircraft if they get caught in a nasty rotor with huge high winds aloft. So pilots learn to stay clear of those places. And it turns out on a day when the wave is there, where you've got these high winds aloft, you had better be very careful. And, for example, it's a winter day today. I'm looking out over the divide. I can see it right out the window here. I don't see any clouds. But that doesn't mean the wave isn't there. And after a while, this is part of the reason why I'm going to connect this with the cycles, you have to learn to visualize where the updrafts and the downdrafts are. And um, I learned that this was literally a matter of life and death uh, many years ago in flying the wave. If you find the, uh, the wave, you'll see that there's a place where the, the wave is moving up, and it can be moving up like a, an elevator. I have literally seen my rate of climb indicator in the plane peg at rates that the plane isn't capable of even doing. But three, 4,000 feet a minute, I mean, this is climbing up at incredible rates of speed because you're in this smooth air that's climbing up over the ridges. And what do we do? Well, if I want to go up, I stay in it. And I literally steer the plane so as to stay in the middle of this rising column of really fast-moving air. Why? Well, it's smooth. It won't tear the wings off the plane. And... Um, in between the updraft and the downdraft, there's an area where there's really nasty, you know, like knock your teeth out kind of turbulence is a possibility. So what you learn to do is to say, okay, I know what the wave looks like. I visualize it, even if I can't see it. If the right moisture is there, I can. But if it's not, I can't. But it's a, it's a matter of life and death to recognize it. Well, I'm suggesting the same thing is true, folks, with these cycles. And just like when there is a, a wave over the mountains, and we got lots of waves of various kinds, economic, political, uh, socio, sexual, you name it, that are going on. If you get in the wrong place in the wave and you're at the wrong place in the wrong time, it can not only tear your wings off, it can kill you. Knock your teeth right out of your head. So we need to learn to recognize, understand the cycles and where we need to be and when we need to be there, whether we're flying a plane or uh, trying to stay alive in, uh, yeah, you've heard the term, turbulent times. So um, back to this idea of the, the prophecies and the cycles and, uh, and where we are. Um, I'm going to mention two things. And I was debating whether to say this one first or last. I guess I'll, I'll save that for later. We'll come back to that. Because there is a story that I did last night uh, out of the news, and I think it connects to something that I just saw today out of Revelation that uh, 
It's kind of interesting. But but that leads me to this other um, reckoning as well. Because people always want to talk about, I saw comments online this morning, uh, right? They're saying Trump will be a dictator. Well, that's the people who were already dictators saying, we don't want that dictator because he'll probably try us for treason and we don't want to hang from the end of a short rope. So um, you, you have the usual suspects pointing fingers at the other suspects and saying he's even worse than we are, if you can possibly believe that. That's a sign of the times. It's, a, it's an indicator that there is turbulence ahead. Um, they want to know who the Antichrist is, right? Uh, the Antichristo. Well, there's that word again. And um, I, I can't tell you how many times. Uh, the Antichrist and a cup of tea by a fellow named Tim. Remember Tim's last name? It'll come to me. Uh, I haven't seen that book in 25 years. I got a copy sitting on the shelf somewhere. But it came out um, years Something like that. might have been Tim Cohen. It's, it's close. But essentially, this guy was proposing that, um, was it, um, um, might have been the, the current king, Charles, uh, then prince, that he thought he was the Antichrist. And, you know, does his name add up to 666? Does he meet the various requirements? And so forth and so on. Um, how about this guy? How about that guy? How about um, uh, Bashar al-Assad of, uh, of Syria? Could he be the Antichrist? You know, over the years, there's been tons and tons of them. I couldn't help but think the Obama uh, fewer. He, he might at least be the beast or, you know, the, uh, the Antichrist sidekick. Uh, there's a guy that certainly is evil. Uh, Hitler, too. You know, no shortage of, of figures in high-profile positions come to mind. And, yes, maybe it's a fun exercise, but as of yet, it has not become clear. Uh, even though uh, King Charles is now uh, on the throne and so forth, uh, we certainly have any number of indications of uh, just the level of evil that these people intend. They're not even hiding it anymore. They want to kill billions. Genocide is high on their list. They, uh, they love the, um, the people that uh, have uh, abortion as a sacrament. And they love this idea of modifying uh, DNA with mRNA and injecting masses of people. Um, the, the level of evil is something I think most of us, uh, even though people begin to kind of uh, awaken to it. I saw an interesting statistic, for example, only 7% of the American populace, even though most of them were duped early on, are now anxious or have taken the uh, mRNA, the latest booster. Just 7%. Well, that's good news. That means that a lot of them, at least, are maze bright, once having been duped and then duped again. Maybe they can figure it out before they're completely dead. And maybe Elohim will even be able to heal their immune systems if they haven't destroyed them too much yet. But we're still going to see the waves of deaths and, and stuff that uh, hopefully they will not be as dramatic as the, um, the left and the WEF and the Gateses of the world intended. I guess we'll see and whether or not they, uh, they're, they're duped into doing something else or whether the Part B represents maybe 5G or some other weapon that will be deployed that will, uh, that will combine and hit them with the one-two punch while they're down. But all of these things, in other words, are pointing in this direction of this major turbulence and of the revelation of something that I think most people are starting to say, well, you know, I'm not sure how close we are, but I can kind of smell it from here. Whether it's the Antichrist or the mark of the beast or a coming civil war or maybe a nuclear confrontation, because they've certainly got World War III well in progress. Um, I have uh, observed, I think it's been clear for, well, decades at this point. Um, it's actually been clear if we've read Scripture since uh, 1913, I wasn't even around back then, that um, this fiat dollar, which is unconstitutional, the Federal Reserve, which is unconstitutional, and the fact that it's got nothing to do with gold or silver coin, which makes it, yep, unconstitutional, that it's heading for a grisly, destructive end. And you know what? Guess what the um, people who brought it into play will do? 
they will know when it's coming. They will pull the strings and push the buttons and profit all the way down. And then they'll unleash what they've got waiting in the wings, which is, well, you can call it various things. Mark of the beast is the one that Scripture uses. And we're already seeing all the pieces, right? No one will buy or sell unless they have this. Central bank digital currencies, socialist credit scores, you name it. If you can't see all of that coming together by now, well, there's probably, uh, well, your delusion has been chosen. I think most listeners here, if they're listening here, already recognize part of that. So um, where I want to go is just a little bit more. I'm going to, I'm going to touch on a couple elements of this um, Antichrist thing, or at least what the, what the coming prophetic elements may look like. And, um, yeah, there's going to be more of uh, what I would call Markology today than usual. And I'm not going to tell you this is how it's going to be. I don't claim to be a prophet. Uh, all I claim to be able to do is read Scripture and try to connect the dots. And sometimes we see through a glass darkly. Sometimes it's pretty clear. I think the mark of the beast, for example, is about as obvious as it can get. Uh, but if, if somebody says, well, is it coming Tuesday? Or is it Tuesday next year? Uh, I can't say for sure. I do know that all the pieces are in place. And the only question is, how fast, how far down do we have to fall um, before we get there. And what I know, you know, as from the, the, to go back to that pilot analogy, flying the mountain wave, I know I want to try to stay in the updraft, in the smooth air, rather than signing up for the downdraft that crashes in the rocks and the turbulence that tears the wings off of, you know, your whole family and your life and everything else if you get caught in the wrong place. I don't want to be in San Francisco, Chicago, New York, or L.A. at any time during what's coming. I don't know when it's all going to fall apart, but I know I'll, I'll at least step in the feces before that. So let's not do it. Uh, likewise, we're seeing so many other things that all point in the same direction. So we'll, we'll do the best we can to, to kind of uh, chart a course, uh, fly the plane, steer via the, uh, the things we can see, even if the wave itself is kind of invisible, but we know the markers, right? If there are clouds there, we know where those are. Uh, by the way, one of the most surefire indicators I learned where in the mountains, because you can look at the terrain, I can say, okay, here's a, here's a, uh, uh, literally a mountain pass, right, like a Venturi, if you know what a Venturi is in a carburetor. The air is going to speed up through there like a jet. Um, you better be really high when you cross over that thing because it's going to be rough. So we can see the same things as we look out at the economy and the world and politics and economics and the spiritual forces that are at play. So um, where, where I'll go first, this is how we'll introduce it, is um, I saw an excellent piece by Leo Holman. And I don't necessarily agree with all of these, but I think it's a, it's a pretty reasonable summary. Um, and I've uh, already said I, I kind of hate these articles. Ten predictions for 2024. Uh, yep, what are we going to see? Well, get ready for tough times. Now, that part at least I can relate to. War on the horizon, economic collapse on the horizon. <laughs> Gee, there you go. Okay, tell me something that's not obvious. 2023, he says, will go down in history as a point where the globalists completed their assembly of the massive secret army inside the U.S. in preparation for the final takedown. Folks, there have been, depending upon whose numbers you believe, minimum 5 million, probably 10 million, maybe two or three times that number of invaders that have been enticed to come into the once free United States just during the, the Biden fuel regime since the, um, the Bolshevik takeover in 2020 and the rigged election. We have seen 
millions upon millions upon millions of foreign invaders, many of them military-aged males, without question, many of them communist Chinese, People's Liberation Army, uh, special forces from various groups, uh, and terrorists of all stripes, MS-13, Hamas, Hezbollah, Al-Qaeda, Taliban. Uh, I wonder if they're bringing back any of the weapons that Biden gave in Afghanistan right across our own open southern borders. Uh, well, they're probably not flying the helicopters across, although I wouldn't put it past the Customs and Border Patrol to flag them on in. Um, but, you know, any way you slice it, and this is one of the things that um, Leo Holman points out, these armies are already in place. Uh, by any calculation, he says, we have at least one and a half million and probably five million or more foreign, no, not invaders. They are invaders, but that's not all. Soldiers, military-aged males, Trained and equipped, were they equipped before or were they equipped once they got in the country? Yeah, we'll come back to that. Already inside the U.S. awaiting their orders. Some of them have joined up with their cells. They're getting their free bus tickets, their free phones. You could not have a more traitorous invading army. This is, this is kind of like, rather than the Trojan horse being pulled in to the ancient city, remember the story there? It's kind of like if the soldiers inside said, oh, don't bother with the horse. Why don't we just open up the gates and y'all just come on in. We'll give you some money, some phones, and show you where the nice places to go rape our women are. This is the equivalent of what's being done in the United States today. The invading army isn't a Trojan horse, folks. It's open the gates and say, you know, come here, the dogs of war. We're waiting. Um, okay, so Holman goes through the rationale for the numbers. But basically, no question about it, there are millions upon millions, millions this is battalion after battalion after battalion. Now, how many terror cells does that make up? Thousands, arguably tens of thousands, maybe millions of terror cells. What will they do? Answer. Everything you can think of and probably a whole bunch more when they run out of targets. From destroying the banking system, various elements of the power grid, working on central nodes for the Internet. If there is a vulnerable infrastructure locale, uh, water treatment plants, dams, you name it, look for it to be targeted. And um, this is going to be something that is more serious than most Americans have yet even begun to consider. But it's a done deal. It's not going to happen. It's already over. Now, what about this, says Homan. Now, this, I think, is a good point, And it's going to kind of go back to this idea of prophecy and an understanding of where we are and what we need to be aware of. What if all those weapons, remember that? Remember when U.S. federal three-letter agencies, Small Business Administration, Department of Agriculture, Health and Human Services, not to mention IRS, FBI, ATF, DEA, were all getting tens of millions and millions and millions of rounds of ammunition, including hollow points and uh, dreaded cop killer bullets, uh, citizen killer bullets. They don't call them that when they're getting ready to kill citizens with them. That uh, the Army isn't even allowed to use in war. But they're being deployed by three-letter standing armies inside the United States. So think about this. Everyone wondered why all of these federal agencies that had no real role in law enforcement at all were buying up all of this ammo under the Obama regime. And again, under Biden. It was an unprecedented, unbelievable level of militarization of the federal government. didn't even stop under Trump. It just slowed down a bit and got hidden. So he says, I'm not here to tell you why those agencies have armed up, but I can tell you, you can guess this, it ain't good. One plausible explanation would be that they would keep those stockpiles on hand and then use them to arm up to supply one side, guess which, in the coming planned civil war that is already on the table.
that they're jonesing for. We saw this criminal traitor in Maine this week. I don't need anything. I'm an appointed. I'm not even an elected official. Hell, I'm just going to say, neither are you going to be able to elect anybody because I'm going to declare who's on the ballot and who's not. Ha ha, how's that for rigging an election? What are you going to do about it? Throw me in jail? As if I didn't know you can't? Come on, Hunter, let's go out and get ourselves some whores and a line of coke. Are they arming up one side of the Civil War? You can probably rest assured that is the intent. Are they already given this armament, the ammunition? Or are they just setting them aside and saying, hey, you know, you, you terror cells, uh, you from the Communist Chinese Party, here's where your depot is, it's over here. And uh, when you need them, this is, here are the keys. Okay, or you guys just break down the door, you're good at that. Okay, they've told us their plans in the wide open, they being the billionaires, the World Economic Forum, the UN allied various um, international NGOs and so forth. Uh, we already know about, I won't belabor this, the digital economy, digital IDs, no more cash, no more privacy, freedom, uh, based on your carbon footprint, which is about as much, and I keep saying this, folks, I, I know folks are sometimes offended, but you just have to call this what it is. Carbon footprint BS is bullshit, okay? The whole idea that the fact that you are a carbon-based life form, hydrocarbons make up your entire uh, DNA and structure and body and muscle and everything, by breathing out, you're exhaling carbon dioxide. Guess what they want to control? Guess what they want to kill? That's the answer. Carbon footprint has nothing to do with what's going on in the climate. Uh, okay, maybe at a uh, fraction of 1% level. All right, there are feedback loops and other cycles that dominate. And the big one, you know it. It's this big yellow ball that climate scientists that get paid by the UN and the Biden Fuhrer will not acknowledge even exists. It's called the sun. And the sun, when it has a fractional percent change in output, or when the spectrum of the light changes, more yellow, more ultraviolet, less infrared, whatever the case may be, sunspot cycles, 100-year cycle, 200-year cycle, when these things basically impact the Earth, it has far greater effects than anything that uh, the Paris Climate Accord dreamed of. But that's not the point. It's got nothing to do with managing climate change. It's got to do with managing people and killing them. All right. So what they're putting in place, right, you know, at the digital ID, the mark of the beast, a foolproof method for tracking, monitoring, and assigning socialist credit scores to every human being, if they can, who walks the earth. Does that sound familiar? Causes all great and small to have this mark, his mark, without which no one will buy or sell. Smart city technologies, and they're being installed now. 5G is part of the Internet of Things. You can't do this control and monitor every transaction and everything that is chipped with all of this new technology without the Internet of Things and 5G and really high bandwidth technology. If you're going to build a beast system, the beast has to have, what, omnipotence and omnipresence. How do we do that? Electronically. We tag you, mark you and your clothes and your underwear and your bra and your panties and your socks and everything else that people buy, tracking them at point of sale and say, ha ha, we know exactly where that little slave is going and what they're doing. And if we don't like it, we'll shut them up. And helpfully, we now have AI to manage that process. Okay, um, The globalists tried... And they told us repeatedly, says uh, Homan in 2023, that we human beings are, uh, well, worthless eaters. Most of us are no longer needed. We can do it with AI. And that applies to you uh, blue-collar workers and office workers and you name it. Um, blue-collar workers, those that can fix machinery or fix a truck, well, we'll get rid of the trucks. That'll solve that. Uh, they're probably in better shape than most of the office workers who can already be replaced. And ultimately, what does that mean? Maybe 2024 is the year where they will start dispatching 
with um, extreme prejudice. You've heard that term. The, uh, the useless eaters. That says uh, Yuval, Yuval Harari, one of uh, Charles Schwab's chief um, Gestapo agents for the WEF. Okay, they've been provoking Russia, trying to foment World War III. They've more or less succeeded in that. I've seen some stories this last week saying that high-ranking German ministers came to Washington and offered terms of surrender for Ukraine. Uh, What do you bet we're not going to hear much about that? But ultimately, all of these things are still going on. And um, meanwhile, uh, under the Biden Fuhrer and the idiots that have tried to destroy the military, they poked the soldiers, sailors, and Marines. They drove the ones that were too smart, those that had survival instincts, out and uh, said, ah, you won't take the poison poke, you're out of here. Besides which, you don't like LGBTQIA indoctrination, and you won't put on your little fuzzy outfit and uh, pretend that you're a pregnant man. You're gone. we got more important things to do than fighting wars and defending this country. Witness the fact that there's no one on the border doing that. Okay, they depleted the entire supply of U.S. 150 millimeter shells. Um, basically, they're almost out of Patriot missiles, ATACMS, and uh, Storm Shadow missiles, drones, uh, you name it. We'll send them over to the Mideast, we'll send them over to Ukraine, and we'll burn them up, we'll blow them up, we'll light them off like strings of firecrackers, and ultimately the stockpiles would take years to replenish, that is, if even they, if even they were trying. And what does that mean? Well, when the time comes to protect the southern border, ah, too late, well, we didn't have any ammo to do it with anyway. All right, um, so some of the other predictions. The continued war on free speech, First Amendment, um, yeah, that's not a shocker at all. The UN, uh, UNESCO, announced on November 6th, just a little over a month ago, a specific global plan to silence free speech on the Internet. We've seen this coming. No surprise there. Continued war on the Second Amendment. The regime is now trying to use federal tax dollars to bribe, coerce the states into um, essentially implementing the gun control laws that are unconstitutional at every level, but they couldn't get a, even a dumbed-down Congress to sign up for. Uh, will we be as stupid as New Zealand and Australia? I guess we'll find out. Uh, I have people that I communicate with in those places, and they're not happy about the fact that they've been disarmed and that when Big Brother says jump, they have no choice but to say how high. Global war on food. Well, we've seen that. On fiat currencies, the death of the U.S. dollar, along with it, the death of brick-and-mortar retail. We're already seeing huge numbers of store shutdowns and so forth. All of these folks are part of a cycle. Of uh, We see uh, you know, brick-and-mortar stores, and over our lifetimes, most of us can say, I remember the rise of the shopping malls and the, the, the decline of the ma and pa stores and the rise of Walmart and then Amazon and various cyclical things. Well, how does that cycle end up? We're seeing it. Bankruptcies in so many of these stores. California this week just announced that uh, if you're a large vendor of um, uh, children's toys, you'll have to have politically correct gender-neutral toys or else. Ha, ha, ha. And what will the big retailer say? Well, we've already learned to say, uh, yes, master, how high? And besides which, now they can tell their customers, no, this isn't me doing it voluntarily like Target and Bud Light did. No, no, I have to do this. I am only following orders. So, um, again, you can see how the cycle begins to play out, and it feeds on itself as people get bent out of shape, and they say, I'm not going to shop at Target anymore, but now what? You're not going to shop anywhere anymore. Ha ha. We saw this coming. Major cyber attacks will target banking, financial sectors, probably the electronic power grid, causing widespread panic. Here's the thing I've been asking. Suppose you had major terrorist attacks that started to wipe out all kinds of things and take down parts of the Internet and the power grid and so forth. Uh, Guess what? Because this has already been telegraphed, they can say this was a cyber attack. 
No, no, it's not all those invaders we let in across the southern border. No, it's the damned Ruskies. Putin did it. Maybe it's MAGA people that did it. Let's go out and round them up and send them to the gulag. If there's any left out there that we haven't already killed by that time. So over and over again, the, the question, and this is part of where I'm really heading with all of this, because one of the things you're going to see is, can you trust what you see on TV? Most people have already recognized if it comes from CNN, the WAPO, or the New York Times, you better take it with a grain of salt. It might just be an outright lie. Ukraine's winning the war. Uh, you know, how much stuff that's come out of the Mideast, and depending upon what people's political and uh, other proclivities are, they'll say, well, Hamas is lying, or Israel's lying. Maybe they're all lying. But one thing's for sure, the media's lying about it, too. And can they fake the videos? Yep, we can fake the videos now. Uh, as Yeshua points out, over and over again, as a matter of fact, in places like Matthew 24, um, see that you're not deceived. This deception is going to be so great that even the elite, if it went on, might be deceived. So recognize that we're going to see a lot of this nastiness come down. And who is going to get blamed? Probably not the people who really done it. That's the key. Lawlessness will increase whether there is or is not an election or a rigged election or whether they just simply say, hey, we've eliminated Trump from all the ballots. We're just going to declare that it's going to be, uh, oh, let's see here. Let's spin the wheel. Uh, you know, pick a communist. All right. Um, the, um, this one's interesting to me. I'm not going to go into the details of it, but um, Holman thinks that there finally will be, once it's way, way, way too late, a wall at the U.S.-Mexico border. I have suggested this for years that I really think that the wall would be intended not to um, keep uh, invaders out, but to keep uh, once-free Americans in, keep them from escaping, just like was the case. Remember the last place they built a wall? Uh, you'd call it an iron curtain if you want, in West Germany, to prevent people, or in between West Germany and East Germany, to keep people from escaping. All right. Uh, the globalists already got their foreign army of sleeper cells. How many more troops will they need? Well, not many. They're practically there already. And every dictatorship needs a wall to keep its citizens in. Now, I'm going to suggest that there's one more, one more aspect of this that I've been watching and I'll just warn people about for years. And uh, honestly, when it comes to this one, well, use your best judgment and pray about it. But um, Trump has said that if he's elected, if they allow him to ever enter the Oval Office again, uh, he will start deporting these tens of millions of illegal aliens. Uh, what does that mean? What well, means a couple things. One, they'll probably pull the trigger and uh, start their war and uh, activate their cells long before he gets there. But even if he was able to do that, understand this. If they start rounding people up and saying, anybody who's not an American U.S. citizen, we're going to deport, how do you prove it? Answer, huh, you know it, with your mark of the beast. Isn't that convenient? Do you have your digital ID? Do you have your e-apis? Do you have your electronic wallet showing that you are a good little slave of Uncle Sam? If you don't, we might leave the, uh, the invaders from communist China, but we might deport you or just put you in the gulag here. So one of the things that is uh, the double-edged sword that comes out of this is as they begin rounding up the supposed bad guys, what will they do? They'll say, prove you're a good guy by showing us your mark. And guess who is uh, going to be the only group that will not do that? Answer, the ones that they've always wanted to get to begin with, those that are Bible-believing, uh, obedient servants of the Most High and not of any earthly government. So um, that's, that's something to be paying attention to. Um, he goes through a couple scenarios with, uh, with Trump 
that um, they're interesting. Uh, I don't think it's uh, it's germane to where I necessarily want to go today. One scenario, uh, he wins in an overwhelming landslide, and they don't manage to, to rig it, and the, the, uh, the things that are already backfiring backfire. But they declare him to be an enemy of the state, and they declare he was elected under false pretenses. And uh, just like the uh, Secretary of State in Maine has shown, we don't need a conviction. We don't need evidence. We'll just declare it. And what are you going to do about it? Ha-ha! If you show up to protest, we'll throw your ass in the gulag. Okay, so they round up the people who don't like it, put them in the camps, and uh, in the, along the line, they probably assassinate Trump somewhere. Uh, how about scenario B, and that is Colorado, Maine, and all the other states that are leftist uh, hellholes just say, well, we're not going to count those ballots. Uh, you know, we, we had to stuff boxes before. That was too much work. You caught us, so we're just going to say the hell with it. We're not even going to try this year. He loses. Okay, and that will jumpstart the thing that they really have been going for, which is the Second American Civil War. I, I find that to be another um, possible uh, alternative that's worth thinking about. And this is where I think things are going to come together. And this is the thing where uh, I really have been working up to. Because um, as you look at this, and remember, what we're doing today is this is a little bit of speculation. When you deal with prophetic events that haven't happened yet and things that are uh, descriptive, for example, of the 12 tribes, or the scepter, and of the coming kings, and of uh, the coming potential uh, so-called antichrist, and so forth. Um, uh, you know, the scripture will be uh, twisted by some, and um, perhaps looked at in an absence of context by others. Uh, and, and maybe sometimes the right answer begins to appear. But um, this is fascinating. So here's the place where I want to spend a minute or two, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to kind of lead to the, um, uh, I guess you'd say, the, the conclusion Continued apostasy, writes Leo Holman, of the church. Now, whenever I hear the church, you know, I, I usually want to put the word the whore church in there. Because uh, whenever the church claims to be the one true universal, you know the word, that's the Catholic name. Does that mean the Roman Catholic? There are other forms that call themselves universal too. Hell, we got 20,000 denominations will all call themselves the one true church, the body of Christ. Um, the Pope, uh, Pope Satan, uh, and uh, his equivalents in the protesting Catholic world will continue to utter in their, their false doctrines. Uh, the, in, the intent is to confuse, divide, demoralize, and destroy <clears throat> the church, even the elect. Um, you saw, I talked about this, the forbidden blessings. Uh, is that a proper blessing for the homosexual? Of course. May he bless and keep the homosexuals and uh, anything else that the creator of the universe calls an abomination, and we will welcome them in. And uh, not so much, though, for you people that uh, know the uh, the real truth of Scripture. We didn't like you here any begin, to begin with. Okay, so they're, they're sowing division among the flock, says Holman. Not just the Romanized pagan church, the uh, protesting Romanized pagan church. Uh, like in China, this is the the, uh, the prophecy or the the prediction he makes that I thought was fascinating. Not that it's newer, and not that it's not something that I haven't figured was was coming for years. But as in China, he says, um, more and more true believers will break away into home churches. Well, of course, this has been the entire message of "Come out of her, my people," Revelation 18, and so much that so many of us in uh, uh, I won't call it this movement, but those of us who understand that his mama never called him Jesus and that uh, he didn't change his rules. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He wrote the instruction for us. He said he wasn't going to change one yoder tittle of it. He is consistent. Every single bit of it, from Genesis to maps. And uh, more and more people are waking up to that. Yeah. Is it a majority? <laughs> no way. Is it a remnant? Well, that's the key. 
It is the remnant. And I think this is an absolute truth. More and more true believers will begin to break away and continue. And those of us that have already broken away will hopefully build a place and be able to welcome those who are sincere and who do seek to rightly divide the word and walk in obedience to him uh, into fellowship. Uh, that's going to be vital to literally to survival in coming time. Um, we're going to see a coming ramp up of the government propaganda to push the um, mRNA. And we're already seeing this. They are sticking this mRNA poison. It's not just poison, folks. This is a manipulation of the human genome. Literally changing people's God-given, in the image of, if you will, DNA, into something different. And literally, they are introducing mRNA vaccines right and left. The childhood immunization schedule, if it's not already, I guarantee you that there's enough of them in there that anybody that injects this crap into their kid, well, they ought to at least consider themselves to be guilty of child abuse. Uh, don't worry, though. Big Brother's not ever going to charge you for that, although the creator of the universe may have something to say about it. Uh, we have been given responsibilities, and when it comes to injecting poisons into our kids, I guess you could say they're without excuse. All right. Um, once man discovered how to hack and change human genetics, it opened up a whole new playing field for Satan, he says, to continue his thousands of years' effort to destroy the seed of Adam. I think that is a brilliant summary. And that, of course, folks, is a pretty good summary of most of Scripture. Um, he knows where he's headed. He'd like to take as many people as possible along with him. And uh, what we're seeing here is an attempt to destroy, and I will concur with this, the concept of free will. The Creator gave us a choice. I quote this all the time, Deuteronomy 30. I have laid before you life and blessing, death and cursing, therefore choose life, that you and your seed might live. And what we're seeing? The prince of this world doesn't give people a choice. The Secretary of State of Maine, the Supreme Court of Colorado, screw your choice, and matter of fact, screw you. No, no, we intend to eat you. This is literally... What the goal of all of this is, it is to kill as many people, it is to destroy them, it is to consume them as the satanic hosts that are the princes of this world can get away with. And the sooner people wake up to the fact that this is no longer even hidden, uh, well, the greater chance they will have of coming out and surviving uh, what is intended for them. They will resist, in other words, the next booster, the last booster. Oh, yeah. And if you think the hysteria in 2020 and 2021 was, was severe, just wait until you see people bleeding from their nose and eyes and wall-to-wall video coverage of people dropping dead on the streets and then being told, put on your mask and get your booster and get your mRNA Ebola shot or whatever they'll call it. Probably name it after Trump or something to scare people even more. He's right. The intent is to exercise a destruction of the concept of choose life. Choose to worship the one true God. You will worship the God of this world. Yeah, he causes all, great and small, to take this mark or else. And by the way, what is, what is the mark? If you think about it, it is the last, the last free choice that any of those people will ever make. It is the truly, deadly, final choice. And that is what we're building up to. That is where this ultimate super cycle tops out, where we see something of truly biblical proportions. Are we going to see it in 2024? I don't know. I, I don't know exactly how close we are. But I think this part is clear. Because to my mind, folks, if you haven't seen it by now, you probably won't. 
And that doesn't apply to most people that are listening here, unfortunately, although I'm hoping that there may be some of those who are on the fence that might listen, might start to pray and ask, give me eyes to see and ears to hear, seek so I can find, help me seek, and that uh, more might, in fact, be saved. Does that mean, uh, you know, get yourself dunked and uh, and say a little prayer for the get-out-of-hell-free card? Uh, nope, that's not what I'm talking about. And um, the trouble is, most people don't ever even understand his real name, which is the salvation of Yah, and how that is what is so important here. There's only one name under heaven and earth by which we shall be saved. You know what? It's not Jesus. It never was. Not while he walked the planet. Isn't that funny? And if you go back to Joel, you can see the name that was taken out, his name, yod Hey vav Hey. And that is the name. And the name by which we are saved is yod Hey vav Hey's salvation, Yahushua. It's so obvious, so clear, once you see it, and once you recognize he's laid out the process, he's laid out the parameters, he's laid out the preconditions. What? Return. Make teshuva. Repent, for the end is near. Well, repent is a, one of those words, again, that uh, most Americans don't understand. Well, repent, I, I, I said I'm sorry. That's not what we're talking about. It means turn around. It is a physical, spiritual act of saying, I was going the wrong way. I better turn around and doing it. And when you understand it that way, it's not nearly as hard, not nearly complicated as they try to make it. So um, that leads me to the rest of this. Um, Islamic and um, Muslim enemies will ramp up the war in the Middle East, uh, says um, Homan. I don't know how this will play out. I do know that it's likely at some point, and we're already seeing this, that um, the U.S. will abandon um, Israel. Now, this Israel, remember, do not confuse it with the Israel of Scripture. The land is the physically same place, but the people, their, um, their obedience to another god, are they serving the god of the Bible? I think that's pretty clearly not the case. Um, but one thing, says uh, Holman, if the U.S. does abandon Israel, that might be the best thing that ever happened to them, because maybe at that point they'll be freed to realize they better cry out to the one true God, because he alone can save them, rather than dialing up a, uh, you know, a fickle, scumbag, senile guy who won't even remember at that point where Israel is on the map. Um, and it, when it turns out that it's obvious that they got no chance of winning, without the uh, superior weaponry and so forth, well, then it'll be obvious to the world that whatever happens was, in fact, what it was that the Creator wanted to happen. And I'm not going to predict how that's going to come out, because I think the key is, is it, in fact, what he says, right? Uh, what about Judah? Remember this from uh, both Ezekiel chapter 23 and Jeremiah 3. She didn't return to me with her whole heart. No, only feignedly, just pretend. The Creator will know the difference. And ultimately, so will the world. Uh, so I don't, I don't know. I, I can't predict that uh, because I think it's going to be fascinating to watch play out. It's going to be part of this super cycle um, collapse. But uh, we will see divine either retribution or intervention uh, one way or another. And um, uh, that's, uh, that's part of the key. All right. Uh, how does all of this end? I mentioned this idea of the Antichrist and of the... Um, uh, the elements that at play here. Uh, somebody asked a question because I made a comment, uh, right? Well, will the Antichrist, will he have uh, the line of Judah in his blood? I, I would uh, tend to suspect that given the number of people that believe so, that that will be almost a requirement. Now, is it for real? How will we know? But the claim, at least, is almost certainly going to be made. Uh, what else? 
And I mentioned that uh, one of the things that I, if I had to guess and say, uh, you know, what would, what would be the claim bloodline of uh, the pretender to the throne, and whoever this person might end up being, uh, yes, we have the, the characteristics that are written in Scripture. Uh, how, you know, can we do it in, in Roman, ancient Greek, um, or, or Latin, or in English, or, you know, do, do the letters have to add up to 666, and, and so forth? And you've seen a whole bunch of uh, kind of cockeyed ways where they'll they'll make that happen for somebody they want to produce as a candidate. It's it's kind of funny. You can almost get most names if you're willing to find enough ancient alphabets to show up with something like that if you put the right words in the title. Um, okay, I, I will suggest that one of the things that seems to me, based on looking at both history, real and twisted is that this Antichrist candidate might very well be what I would call a Merovingian um, Ashkenazi. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, the Ashkenazi, as you know, are, are the predominant um, group, and some people will, and I don't have an opinion on this one, or at least I'm not going to weigh in on it, because I don't know the ethnicity of all the people that are involved, but that um, the Ashkenazi are one of the major groups. There's two major groups within rabbinic Judaism. They're generally called the, the Sephardic, so the Sephardi, and the Ashkenazi. And I've known people that would uh, claim descendants from both lines. Most of the Sephardics would say, hey, the Ashkenazi don't like us, they persecute us. All right? And the Sephardics, in fact, were the ones that were uh, scattered and that have ended up in uh, uh, places like Latin America and so forth. Um, that's not, um, uh, again, any generalization is always going to end up uh, on the short end because you're going to find lots and lots of exceptions. We're unique, we're individuals, and we're all over the place. On the other hand, there's no question that a lot of the people that would call themselves Ashkenazi aren't really of the line of Judah, as Scripture talked about at all. They might be Kazakhs, they might be from Kazakhstan, they might have been people that were scattered from other places. Maybe, maybe they have uh, blood of some of the other 12 tribes in them. I don't doubt that all that's possible. But the point is... Uh, there's a difference between what is claimed and what the claim is, I descend from so-and-so, and what's real. And for the most part, we're not going to know. But it would uh, not surprise me that the person who claims and uh, you know, is, uh, is promulgated as this, as this so-called antichrist would claim to have the, um, the blood of Judah, uh, therefore be worthy of, uh, of uh, whatever, uh, to that line of people that care. And uh, that would probably be through some kind of an Ashkenazic claim. And then the other one, and this is the one people, uh, I had a number of people when I mentioned this said, what, uh, Merovingians? I've never heard the term. What is Merovingians? And uh, this is, is fascinating. Now, as I, as I mentioned this, understand that one of the elements that's, um, even if we don't like it, even if we recognize that it's a lie, it doesn't mean people don't believe it. Right, it's just like the uh, the Yule log, and so much of paganism that has invested itself and in, and infected Christianity. Oh, I don't like it. I don't want to believe that um, uh, Easter could possibly have anything to do with a pagan fertility goddess. Bunnies and eggs are just wonderful little things that God put there to remind us of the death of our Messiah. What? Right. The fact that people believe a lie, in other words, doesn't mean that it's true. It just means they're falling for it. So, with respect to the Merovingian dynasty, and I've always thought this one was kind of funny because uh, it is both a conspiracy theory, and yet if you look it up online and you read it, you will see that, um, yep, most of the major lines of the kings of uh, Europe and the major dynasties, you, you know, pick a dynasty, Stuart dynasty, uh, Wilson's, and um, the line of... Um, 
the kings of France, the various Louis up through the 14th and on, um, they all have certain characteristics. Well, one of them we've heard, blue blood, right? What does blue blood mean? Well, it means they all come from some kind of a, a common root. And one of those common roots that's um, both the substance, a substance of conspiracy and of um, speculation is this uh, Merovingian dynasty thing. Now, if you do a web search, and uh, Wikipedia is great for this because Wikipedia will be more than happy to spew crap at you. Just understand that. Uh, you'll find that um, the uh, Merovingian dynasty was a ruling family of the Franks from about the 5th century, late 481, when a fellow named Clovis I ascended the throne of the Frankish kingdom until 751. And, uh, of course, their bloodline continues long, long after. And there were other bloodlines, and remember there was intermarriage and the various kings, and you have kings in Bulgaria. Uh, there are all kinds of names that you'll find uh, that show up in these uh, bloodlines that are claimed by various people. Vlad the Impaler, right, the, the, uh, the dynasties that are uh, associated with the vampires and some pretty nasty folks. Uh, the German dynasties, a lot of the Merovingians ended up in the, the Gallic kingdoms and so forth. You may have heard of a fellow named Charles Martel, Charles the Hammer of the Merovingian dynasty. Uh, later, this name I know, even people that study um, a little bit of European history in the cesspools may have heard the name Charlemagne. Okay, so lots and lots of people that would be of this Merovingian dynasty. Uh, what's kind of fascinating, if you look at a movie that came out, everybody's seen The Matrix probably. Uh, the second movie in particular, uh, he may have showed up at the end of the first movie, I don't recall, but there was a fellow called the Merovingian. And one of the things that, uh, that the movie did, interestingly, was they would put all kinds of references in, in here. Some of them scriptural, some of them conspiratorial. Uh, remember, you have the One, you have Neo, uh, you have the, uh, you know, the Messiah figure, you have Trinity. Uh, you have so many things that are out of various kinds of both pagan and um, alternative and um, mainstream Christian and so forth uh, literature that show up as names. So uh, the fact that the Merovingian is in there at least tells us that um, this is something that probably we're going to see again. So without saying much more than that, I'm not going to say that the, the, um, the Antichrist will be a Merovingian Ashkenazi or anything of that sort, but I do think we at least have to recognize that uh, there is so much smoke out there floating around that some of it's probably going to hit the target. Okay, uh, there's one other element of this that I want to throw out into the mix here. As, uh, uh, and, and by the way, because this is a day of uh, a lot of speculation, a lot of things that are just kind of interesting to talk about, um, I like the idea of iron sharpening iron, of course. If there are comments or questions, if I miss something, put those on the screen. Make sure I see them. We'll try to answer them. I told at least one or two folks I tried to get around to this Merovingian thing. And, oh, I see a comment about uh, Nimrod, and are they bringing him back to life using his DNA? Oh, yeah. How's that one? Uh, you're certainly going to see that. We had the whole Jurassic Park series. We can reanimate DNA, and uh, it was done in amber with the dinosaurs. But um, uh, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard stories out of Baghdad and the reason for the war in the Middle East and the reason why they want to go into the Sphinx and all this kind of stuff was to try to find ancient DNA from various people. Og of Bashan, I'm sure, would be a great find. Uh, not quite up there with Nimrod, but close. And so many others that they could reanimate. How about Adolf Hitler? How about, you know, pick a demonic figure in history. Let's get his DNA and mix it into our super soldiers. Add a little mRNA in there, spin the crank, do a little CRISPR analysis, and then in Invite the satanic host to come on in. The body is fine. 
Um, I mean, the mind boggles, literally, with the level of possibilities. And just know this. We're going to see smoke and we're going to see some fire. And there's going to be elements of truth because the 80-20 rule, you know, works whether you mix 20% lies with 80% truth or vice versa. So uh, understand all of that. Anyway, um, so if there are questions, I'll, I'll take a look at those. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I didn't even mention the shapeshifters and, uh, you know, does hit and return into a lizard creature and a gray when no one's looking. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, I, those, are, those are the kind of things where I think, well, you know, I wouldn't have believed 90% of the stuff that I'm seeing in the headlines today. Why not, right? Uh, I could believe that um, before I'd believe that she would come out and um, um, accept the, the, the one true Messiah as salvation. Um, you know, pick pick a pick an unlikely event, folks. It's going to be in tomorrow's headlines. That's what I'm trying to say here. So never say that something couldn't possibly happen because it's too obscene. Because you'll probably see it being tried out, uh, you know, taught on some uh, uh, Navy aircraft carrier in the Gulf to uh, innocent little soldiers wearing their uh, their pregnancy vests. Ah. Okay, here's where I was headed. This is a story that I saw courtesy of a um, a Meta insider, an engineer. And this is the kind of thing that is going on at some of these big tech companies as part of the technocracy and so forth. Um, and I read a little bit of this on the, the news summary I did last night. But I think it's kind of fascinating. And um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read also, I guess after I do a bit of the story, I'm going to read a little bit from Revelation chapter 13 here in a second. So brace yourself for that. I'll get that, uh, I'll get that queued up. This is a, um, an engineer who wrote, I am an insider at Meta, working... Now, Meta, remember, is the uh, Mark Zuckerberg company, once known as Facebook, or as I prefer to refer to it, because it is, to Facebook. Anyway, we're building an AI, this guy from Meta says. The AI is going to be able to take over a deceased person's social media accounts, all of them, continue making posts as if the dead person was really still alive. This includes... Uh, AI will be able to pr- produce progressed age-relevant um, photos. In other words, they'll have photos online, and they'll, they'll fake them up to make it look like the person's still alive and at the right age. Interacting with other people's content, right? Bots do it now. Everything else needed to make sure that person continues on in the digital realm after their physical death. You won't be able to tell if they're not alive. We're originally told this would be a service offered to people struggling with the idea of the loss of their loved ones or their missing children. Uh, seemed like a decent idea. Well, those people that were duped into working on it, yeah. Uh, but things are getting weird now, he says. Gee, do you think? I'm having second thoughts about what this is going to be used for. <laughs> I guess if there's hope for people like this, folks, see, there's the stuff that's unlikely but possible. This AI, he says, that we're working on is extremely capable of impersonating people. Doesn't take as much initial input as you might think to train the AI about how somebody interacts with the digital world. It's very convincing, right? They got a bunch of your two Facebook posts or your tweets, and it's, voila, you can live forever in the digital realm, and nobody can know if it's really you or if it's a deep fake. Um, and furthermore, an entire island of people, he says, could just plain go missing. With little or no downtime, the AI could pick right up on their socialist media. The world wouldn't have a clue that life wasn't just continuing as normal. Now, isn't this great? Think about it. If you intend to disappear lots of people and send them off to the gulags or kill them, how better than to just keep them right there on socialist media? It's a conspiracy theory to say that John Smith was executed and his body and his children taken out in the field and buried. No, I just tweeted to him the other day. 
I saw his picture. A lot of the project, he says, is becoming more compartmentalized. In other words, one hand doesn't know what the other hand's doing. Here's the line that caught my attention. This uh, project seems to have taken a dark turn. <laughs> you think? It feels like they've forbidden communications. Well, they have. Uh, and they're, they're trying to, to prevent people from knowing what's going on. Uh, they, they don't let people working on different things talk to one another. Something isn't right, he says. I don't know what I should do. Uh, I'll get a hint, right? Scripture says, come out of her, my people. Don't participate with the sins so you don't partake of the plagues. But, hey, there you go. Um, I'm not going to post anything personally identifiable because I'm scared. And I'm not going to answer questions. I will, but, but I won't answer any that would expose my role. Isn't that interesting? Sorry, I guess what that leads to is just kind of food for thought, isn't it? Now, it's not like not like we haven't seen the deep fakes. It's not like we haven't seen the attempts and the ability to literally take people. Uh, I have no I, I have no um, illusions that um, you know with with a whole bunch of recordings, for example, of the things that I'm talking about from Scripture, that people couldn't produce an AI deep fake. That would sound a lot like me, except maybe when it came to some important things that might begin to sound a little bit different than what I've been talking about or what Scripture had been talking about. But hey, if all the Scripture that you have access to is online and they tweak that at the same time, how are you going to know, right? In other words, we're at a place where literally people can be faked, events can be faked, so much can be faked that even the elect might be deceived. You remember the part about a famine for the word. I can imagine that as, as part and parcel of this very same project. Matter of fact, you had Pope Satan this week. They've already rewritten the Ten Commandments. They're going to rewrite a politically correct version of Scripture. Why not? He already dials God up on the red phone or tells him what else he got wrong. Fish on Friday, pork is fine, and no, we can, uh, we can say that a priest can't be married. We don't like that. They, they become a threat if they have a dynasty of their own, and so forth and so on. Is this surprising at all? Well, where does this where does this kind of tie back into this idea of things that we can um, understand? Right, the, the point of prophecy. Yeshua says, "See, I, I warned you. I have told you beforehand." That's why He's laid out some of these things for us. Um, Amos, uh, we're told uh, that Yahuwah does nothing but what He says. He first declares my intentions through my servants, the prophets. So we we've been warned. Uh, I have pointed out for years that uh, it seems like Satan is kind of bound by the same kind of rules, because he does nothing but what he first declares his intentions through his servants, Hollywood. I'll look at some of the predictive movies. Uh, some, you know, for good or for ill. The Matrix is obviously one example. That's a kind of a ripoff of the Messiah story. But look at the Terminators and Skynet. That's literally coming to pass. The Terminator robots, folks, are being built. China's going to be shipping them over here in no, no, no time flat. And um, minority report, um, thought crimes, pre-crime, we got all of that stuff. And that's just examples off the top of my head. So understand that we're going to see this stuff playing out, and we've been warned, um, both by the satanic hosts and those who um, you know carry his water on this planet, and by the creator of the universe. So uh, see that you are not deceived is his, uh, his note. Let's see, we've got a question here. Um, is it possible that serving Yah in the way the nations serve their false gods is idolatry? I would have to say, honestly, no offense here, duh. That is the very definition. That's why he says it. That's why Deuteronomy 12 and 13 are in there. So, yeah, not just uh, uh, is it possible. It's absolutely why he comes right out and says that that's what it is. Don't see, don't ask, how did these nations, nations serve their gods? I will do likewise, because I'm a good Catholic. Whoops. Yeah, folks, that was the point. 
the Catholic Church, if they had been a servant of the Most High, would know you're not supposed to take these pagan things and incorporate them and say, we've Christianized them. He said, don't do it. It's abomination to him. Matter of fact, Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 12, don't even take the silver or gold that's on these idols. Don't bring them into your house. Don't do any of that. You'll be a snare to you. I've warned you. So, yeah, um, this shouldn't be surprising to folks, but it is. And it's part and parcel of so much of what's coming down. Uh, again, it's, it's part of the reason why I think it's kind of fascinating to uh, explore the, uh, the speculation and some of the connections because, you know, the truth is we go back and we look at history and we see the stories of um, uh, the things that are in Scripture. And they seem, in hindsight, sometimes at least, they seem fairly black and white, right? Abraham did what was right. Um, we've got various kings. He did what was evil in the side of the uh, Abraham's faith was accounted to him for righteousness. He walked in obedience and so forth. Well, that seems pretty straightforward. Uh, and, and yet we, we look at today and we go, well, it's not nearly as clear today, right? This deception is so much bigger. We have all kinds of web deception. And it's economic deception, uh, dishonest weights and measures. Well, you know, I would have thought that dishonest weights and measures, the almighty fiat dollar, since it's unconstitutional and uh, an abomination in Scripture, would be about as obvious as it gets. And yet... What do most people tell you? Well, you can't possibly get along. You can't survive without getting a paycheck in dollars. You can't come out of that. You can't. You just can't. You can't. Well, they're going to say the same thing about the mark of the beast. Only it's going to be worse. Right? Do we see it? In other words, it's one thing to say, oh, we can read about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it's a whole different thing to think that we, we should do something similar when it comes to paying attention to the lies today. Because they're more complex, they're more subtle. Surely he knows my heart, he knows I don't want to commit this idolatry, but, you know, the kids like the Christmas trees, they like going to visit Santa Claus. Maybe they cry when I put them up in uh, the red cherry god's arms, just like the little kids probably did when they were being sacrificed to Molech. Mm, but no no possible peril, though, there, right? Either it's obscure, or it's um, so clear that we just don't want to see it, and so we turn away in horror. Well, that leads me to where I was headed with this, because we have this idea that was expressed here, the deep fakes and the AI and the ability to literally keep people alive after they're dead, make you think that they're still alive even after they're dead. Now, what do we hear in Scripture? Let's see, the image of the beast. What's the image of the beast? I don't know. Can you think of an, of an example of how you might create an image of the beast or something that would look like the image of some bad guy? Right? It's not a leap at all to suggest, you know, you see a, uh, what, do you know that the Biden Fuhrer, when he appears on TV and, you know, raises his fist like Adolf and uh, reads from the teleprompter, can you tell if you're not, by, you know, cheating, you could look at his earlobes, is that the, the real one or is that one of these multiple fakes? Do the earlobes attach or are they different? Did they put better drugs in him today or is he just more cogent? Or if he walks into a wall, how do we know that's the fake? Uh, you know? Most people don't see this individual in person, and even if they did, they're not close enough to tell. If it was a nothing-but-TV, AI-created fake, you honestly, 99.9% .9 of the world would have no way of knowing. No way at all of knowing. So let me read a couple of lines here from Revelation chapter 13. With this idea in mind of the uh, dead becoming alive via the AI that can resurrect their image and uh, make it sound just like they're still there. Then it says, this is the prophet, Yohanan, saying, I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast 
rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. Everybody's heard this prophecy. On his horns, ten crowns. On his heads, a blasphemous name. <laughs> the mind boggles. How many possible uh, explanations can we think of just from the headlines today, right? Now, this beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. His mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. The Antichrist and a cup of tea makes a big deal about that because of the dragon on the shield of the coat of arms of the uh, the Merovingian descendant. I didn't mention that, but yep, uh, Charles and the line of the Wilson kings, and before them, I think the Stuart kings as well, they all claimed descent, descent from Merovi. Now, oh, here's part that I didn't mention, by the way. I guess this, this we, th- we should throw in there. Uh, what was the Merovingian dynasty really? Well, here's the conspiracy theory part. They will talk about it in secret, and uh, you won't find it on most of the, even Wikipedia, but it's out there. And that is, well, really what happened was Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross. He was spirited off, and uh, uh, Joseph of Arimathea took him up to Britain in a boat, and they landed on the shores there, and then he had kids with, uh, pick, a, pick a woman, and those women, uh, they had blue blood, and the kids had blue blood, and these were the descendants, and guess what came out of them? Yeah, the line of the Merovingian kings, the blue bloods, that are the true rightful kings and the heirs, not just of Merovi and all the uh, dynasties of Europe, but, yes, of Jesus Christ himself, or so the story goes, right? How much is a lie? Well, I tend to think all of that is a great big stinking feeded lie, but... Guess what? There are people that believe it and people that will push it. And even those who are of that line, or at least claim to be of that line, that will tell you quietly, you know, you know that's true, I'm, I'm a descendant of you-know-who. Okay. And probably others, too. I wouldn't be surprised if they don't claim Mohammed and, and uh, maybe a little bit of a Prince Vlad the Impaler, and you name it, while they're at it. Back to the story here, though. So you got this, um, the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. Dragon. That's an interesting term. I don't so much care about what the Greek word is, but I can't help but suggest that maybe the um, the original Hebrew word there might have been nakash. Right? Genesis chapter 3. Nakash. Can't prove that, but hey, what the heck. That's part of the reason why you don't want to make sure you, you allow the original manuscripts to be out there. They're probably in the basement in the Vatican somewhere. And uh, I, again, I don't doubt that this revelation of Yohanan, because he was a Hebrew, Aramaic-speaking individual, talking with his brother, the Mashiach himself, they are probably speaking Hebrew, or at least Aramaic, and I bet you they knew those words, and it got translated into Greek. But hey, can't prove that either. It says then, And I saw one of his heads, as if it had been mortally wounded. One of his heads, mortally wounded. And his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled, let's listen to this. Now, I, I know this is not how most folks would have read it, but I can't help but chuckle a bit. All the world marveled and followed the beast. Yeah, I want to subscribe to his Twitter feed. They followed his Twitter feed. They followed the beast. And the AI kept on feeding them what they were following. Isn't that cool? They don't know he's dead. Can they prove it? Looked like he was mortally wounded, but, well, there he is. He, and he's aging, even. The AI's taking care of that, too. Does, does this not, at least, um, in, in the modern parlance and context, am I suggesting this is what it meant all along? No. But I am suggesting one of the interesting things about prophecy, and as we, we see things begin to play out, uh, I remember being shocked by this when I first saw the mark of the beast. Uh, probably close to 30 years ago, or more at this point. 
uh, recognizing, wow, okay, John Yohanan wrote about this long before there was chips or RFIDs or any of the technology, but um, it fits. And to some extent, I, I will also admit and acknowledge that uh, I don't think that there aren't some satanic forces that know this book pretty well and say, hey, this is going to blow them away. Let's just call this card that we're issuing to the military for one example. Let's call it the Mark card. And they did. It says, so they worshipped the dragon, the Nakash, yeah, that gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth, maybe an AI mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. And he did what? He did what all of these uh, beasts do. He did what you got to do if you want to be a uh, an influencer and a, uh, a high mucky-muck in the world of a satanic, uh, well, world government. He opened his mouth in blasphemy against Elohim to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in Hashemayim. The heavens. Okay, well, as you know, chapter 13 ends with the uh, the part about the mark itself. That um, the uh, I saw another beast. Now, remember, this is a different beast rising up. This one had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a nakash, like a dragon. He exercised all the authority. That first beast, in his presence, he causes the earth and all who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. The more we see this, the more we recognize the things that are going on, the more it's at least not hard to say, wow, uh, I can see a lot of ways that this can play out. And then again, um, I'll read this because if we haven't read it, this is the end of chapter 13. It certainly is important. And um, as um, as a friend of mine, um, some of you may know Colonel Bogreitz. Uh, he was the one that used to say this fairly frequently. Um, if you look at Scripture and you start to understand the mark of the beast, this will be the kind of thing that will convince people. Right. Look at this and, and try to tell me that you can't see the hand of God here. Verse um, 16. He, meaning the second beast. Um, well, no, let's let's pause because you got to read this first verse before it. Um, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. Granted power to give image to give breath to the image of the beast. Huh. Uh, c- could that be an AI? Yeah, I can't argue with it. How are you going to know? That's the question that I always want to ask. H- how are we going to know whether these things are real or bots? Um, we-, we see this today. I-, I hear people say, oh, you know, you go to these dating applications online. Half of them are fakes. They're bots. They're they're not real people. FBI sets people up all the time. Want to want to go have a little boy here? Yeah. You can't tell. They could do it on a. Well, they are doing it on an international scale. So, granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the, be- the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So, uh, those who don't have the proper socialist credit score, head them up, round them up, send them into the concentration camps and kill them. Oh, and by the way, this is great. We can even keep them alive afterwards. They can continue making socialist media posts. People won't even figure out that they're gone. Isn't that clever? Here we go. Verse 16. He causes all, both great and small, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads that no one may buy or sell. What is buy or sell? Commerce. What is the mechanism? Well, the almighty fiat dollar, the central bank digital reserve currency that replaces it. A uh, currency that is completely digitally controllable. We can turn it off. We can turn you off. We can digitally eliminate you. How convenient. 
No one may buy or sell unless they have taken the name or the mark of the beast or the number of his name. Okay, so uh, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for this number of a man. His number is 666. Okay, so got a question. Let's see, where was it? Oh, give breath. Is that give a soul? Okay, sorry. Give, uh, yeah, well, ruach is breath. Uh, soul is nefesh. Now, the trouble is, again, we don't have the original Hebrew here. So it's, uh, it's a little bit of a speculation to say. Usually the word that we see rendered into English as soul is nefesh, or sometimes as life, a living uh, soul. A ruach is breath, and ruach is also spirit. There's other words, too, uh, uh, neshama, that, that can be used. So uh, I can't answer that question for sure, but I can't help but think, yeah, uh, there is definitely a, a similarity there. And besides, suppose it's a fake. Suppose this thing doesn't really have a, a breath or a ruach, but it looks like it does. Most people aren't going to be able to tell the difference. And that's, that's the key. I notice, by the way, if you're curious and you're wanting to look through here, that the next chapter, chapter 14, references the, uh, the Lamb and the 144,000 and uh, those who are redeemed from the earth and, and so forth. Um, another followed. And I'll, I'll, I'll cut to this line here. Um, another Malak, an angel, a messenger, followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city. Because now Babylon, right, is that, uh, remember, there's a sign, if you've ever seen the, uh, the approach to New York City, uh, and the harbor there, welcome to Babylon, because Babylon, New York, is just uh, you know a little ways outside the harbor, and the boats see it as they come in. But in any case, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she had made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And I'll admit, that's a line I can't read without thinking, woo, yeah, there's other cities, the city of London probably uh, that fits, no doubt about it, the city of New York fits, as does the swamp. But um, when it comes to America, you've probably heard me say this before. People ask, "Is America Babylon?" And I say, "Well, I won't. I won't say that it is or it isn't, or that you know some city within America couldn't be Babylon. But one thing's for sure: the whole stinking feeded place is the Greater Babylon metro area in modern parlance." Okay, so um, they are all drinking of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. What is it that the State Department does? If you notice this, they go out into the foreign embassies and they hang a rainbow flag. Hell with the American flag. we got a rainbow flag. Now, that's more emblematic of the real State Department mission of the once free United States of America. Are we spreading truth, justice in the American way? Are we spreading our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, and the concept that there is a God and that our rights come from Him and that the one true purpose of government is to secure these rights? Hell no! We got the LGBTQIA++ agenda and the rainbow flag. Screw the God of the Bible. We don't even welcome him into our own places, much less here in this embassy or in these places where we fly this rainbow flag where we've even absconded with the symbols he said recognize a covenant that he made that we could care less about. Wow. He's made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. What's fornication? Well, the, the, the Hebrew word... Um, that doesn't exist, but in the Greek it's porne, and it just means sexual sin there, of which, yeah, the mind boggles. If there's a sexual sin, the Bible says don't do it. Oh, they're pushing it, and they got an initial for it, and it's part of the rainbow, what we're going to ram down your throats and cut your kid's genitalia off to support. 
Okay, the third angel followed, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships this beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, then he himself shall drink also of the wine of the wrath of Elohim, which is poured out full into the cup of his indignation. Now, when I see this idea of the cup and his indignation and the cup that Yeshua took and what it was that Moshe poured out and made people drink after the incident with the golden calf, kind of idolatry A, and then we've seen it follow up idolatries, yep, I can't help but think that this is the cup that is put into the hand of the woman accused of adultery. And it fits here, doesn't it? That person, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the set-apart Malachim and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Let me fix the next verse because this is not how it was written, as you know. Here is the patience of the saints. Here, those who keep the commandments of Elohim. Which ones? The ones that are written in this book here. The ones that they say are done away with. The ones that Yeshua, the real one, said he wasn't changing one yod or tittle of. And the faith of the Mashiach, Yahushua. Then I heard a voice from heaven say to me, Write, write the following. Blessed are the dead who die in Adonai, in the one true creator and in obedience to him from here on out, from now on. Yea, says the Ruach, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Oh, I thought we're saved by faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. You see, there's, there's a problem because that has, um, that has been taken out of context. This, this whole idea, uh, and, and again, this, this takes us back to the one true faith and the faith of the Mashiach, as opposed to, what, another Jesus whom we've not preached, and all you got to do is just say the get-out-of-hell-free prayer, and maybe get dunked a little bit, or, oh, I don't know, is it good enough just to get sprinkled with some water that's been sitting in a uh, pagan church for a while? Um, folks, his, his commandments are clear. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He hasn't changed it. And if we will read and understand the book, and that's essentially the key here, and that's what I'm urging people to understand, if we are not going to be deceived, if we're not going to be deceived by this greatest deception, arguably, in human history, well, then how much more so do we simply need to be not deceived by the whore church, not deceived by Easter, a pagan fertility goddess that somehow has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with the sacrifice of the one true Mashiach on the execution stake. Right? If we begin to see it, we start to unravel the lie. The information we need is all right here. It is all right here. And it's not hard. It's not too hard for us. Deuteronomy 30 tells us that too. And yet, so much of the so-called church, the whore church, is still in rebellion, still in exile, has not returned to him, and arguably won't. Those people that are being deceived, that have not figured it out yet and can't even recognize that the things that are, that are put there for them in genuine print can't distinguish the one true Mashiach from the fake? I'll, I'll be as kind as I can. How the hell do they think they're ever going to not be deceived into avoiding the mark of the beast? And all this other stuff, which is so clearly, if not here, on the immediate near-term horizon. 
Um, I used to ask a, a young friend of mine who uh, who grew up and his dad never registered him for a Social Security card. He said, well, if I join the military, I'm going to have to sign up for that. And, uh, you know, it's like I've, I've resisted till now, but, uh, you know, maybe I'll just quit before I have to take the mark of the beast. Uh, I, said, I said, well, what makes you think that if you get in the habit of saying yes to things that you already know you shouldn't be saying yes to, that you're suddenly going to develop a backbone when it's a matter of eternal life and death? Uh, don't you think maybe it's a good idea to start practicing saying no to the satanic evil now and coming out? Because this deception is only going to get worse, and that's the key. That is the thing that is so important to remember here. And I guess that's that's the bottom line. Uh, again, we look at all of this stuff and we say, wow, this seems really confusing. Uh, these genealogies and the bloodlines and who are these kings and who's going to be the Antichrist and how can we tell and all that kind of stuff. Well, you know what? We don't have to. Ultimately, it'll be obvious in hindsight. But what we've got to do is start getting in the habit of having eyes to see and ears to hear and rightly dividing the word of truth now so that we are ready, so that we're able to do what Yeshua says over and over again in Matthew 24. See that you are not deceived. Paul says it, right? Rightly dividing the word of truth. Study to show yourselves approved. We're promised it's not too hard. We're promised that we can do it. But we're not promised that it'll be easy. So with that, I guess I'll pause and I'll ask again any um, any other questions before we uh, before we pray today. All right, I see the comments about rebuilding the temple and the the Kohanim beginning of the sacrifice. Will they be real Kohanim or will they be fakes? How do we know? And so forth. Um, uh, one thing that I do think is true that uh, yeah, it could be done in a relatively short order and. Uh, you know, is it going to be the real or the fake? I I, uh, I think what's what's fascinating. If I had to guess, uh, given what we know from Scripture and what we know from prophetic understanding and what we can see and how the pieces fit together, uh, I do think it's uh, it's it's virtually a lead pipe sense, in my opinion, that whatever we see happen first, that the world will fall for. Uh, it might be an alien revelation, and uh, you know, some guy comes down out of the spaceship and says, you know, Klatu uh, Barado uh, Nikto, and uh, I'm here, and we've been guiding your evolution all this time, and and I, by the way, I have the blood of of Muhammad and and um, of uh, Jesus and of all these other people and the Merovingian dynasty and and probably some of a Judah, and you know, pick pick your bloodline. I got it all. I I manipulated all of them. In other words, we're going to see some real nasty deception. And that's likely to be the first thing out of the tubes before we get the return of the real one. So uh, that would be my take, anyway. Expect the deception first. And whatever it is you see most people signing up for and running and saying, Oh, oh, go get this. That's so great. Got to have that chip. Got to have that injection. Uh, don't do it. That's, that's the, the, safe, the safe thing to do. And for crying out loud, study, pray about it first, and recognize it. Because uh, the deception is going to be one for the record books. And if we aren't in the habit of studying and recognizing it already, in other words, if you, if you haven't been able to figure that up until now, I doubt that most people are going to suddenly get it. I think there will be more and more people waking up to it. But um, it's going to take some, um, you know, the, the school of hard knocks, if you will, in order to get them to have it uh, happen. Okay. All right. I've seen more comments, but I don't see anything. That, um, that needs a response. So um, let's uh, let's close in prayer. In prayer, Yahuwah Eloheinu, Yahuwah Echad. I believe we thank you for your blessings, for your protection. We thank you, Father, for your word, and that we can gather together, and that iron sharpens iron. And we recognize that in your in your word, and then the things that you have told us to be aware of, and to be understanding, and to be looking for, 
in your prophets. We thank you that you have given all that we need, and we pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Because we know that um, what it's to the uh, honor of and the glory of Yahuwah for you to hide some of these things. And it is to the glory of kings to search them out, as Solomon put it. So help us, Abba, to search out your truth, to be not deceived, to see, to make the connections, to have the understanding that you give to us in such a time as this. Guide us, guide our steps. Let your Torah be a lamp to our feet. And help us to be ready for these things that are coming, for this deception, so that we are not deceived. We know that there's a way and a path that is broad that leads to destruction. A lot of folks are going to head down that road. And we know, too, you've told us that the way that leads to life is narrow, and few there be that find it. So guide us, help us to speak your truth boldly as we ought to, to walk in obedience, to guide others that seek as well that we might, as many as can be called by your name and walk in your ways, might be saved and might come together and might be prepared for all these things that are coming. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like or how it's going to play out. But we pray that you would use us and that above all we would be good and faithful servants unto you, that we would be found doing your work from now through all this time ahead, through the time of your return, and that we might enter into your rest and to your land. This we ask in your set-apart name because you are our king, our Mashiach, our salvation, our help in times of trouble. You are Yahuwah Zedeknu, Yahuwah Vitzivenu, Yahuwah Zevuot, our healer, Yahuwah Rapha, our all-sufficient El Shaddai, and we thank you and praise you. Hallelujah. Amen. Okay. I see the last comment. I expect the alien deception any time now. That's another one that I, I kind of agree with, but I don't. And it goes like this, because I've expected the uh, currency meltdown for years at this point. And I keep seeing signs that it's at hand, but not yet, not quite yet. No, they haven't quite needed yet to pull the trigger on that one. And I think the aliens is kind of the same way. They keep sending out the clues. I'm seeing more and more stuff, right? There was video this week of a UFO that went into the water, and the Navy has this. And, and oh, yeah, they're, they're fixing to tell you. We got the movies, we got ET phone home, you know, we got it all, and we've had it all for years. And uh, we're going to get more and more and more. But I think they'll wait to pull the alien trick out of the bag until all the other you-know-what has hit the fan, and it's all coming down around us. So um, I, I think we'll get more warning, in other words, on the aliens. Not that we're not going to see the uh, the teasers, as somebody put it online, but um, as far as, um, you know, um, take me to your leader and Klaatu Barada Nikto, um, the day that the earth stood still is still out there a little ways after the day that the earth came to pieces. And there might have been a nuke go off. Maybe Damascus was reduced in all the city anymore. And uh, the electronic uh, meltdown and uh, a little bit of um, dollar collapse and CBDCs. And, uh, and then it will be the aliens that say, see, see, we're here to make sure you all take your chips and get your injections and become good little slaves. And don't worry, we have our Bible and it's called to serve man. And if you've ever seen that uh, Twilight Zone episode, you know that's supposed to be a little bit of humor there. All right. If you haven't, uh, go look it up online to serve man. But um, uh, there's a message there, too. And by the way, uh, Rod Serling was brilliant on that score. Okay. I see the comment. All right. Um, uh, that's from Deuteronomy 33. And, and I note that in, uh, in Deuteronomy 28 through 32, and in, in the first part of chapter 30, he tells us that there will come. This is one of my favorite prophecies in the book. Um, 
And he says, there will come this time when all these things have come upon you and you find yourself in these places and scattered that you will return and you will obey and you will be regathered. So that's um, that's something to look forward to. Okay. Oh, maybe evil people are already working with the aliens. Uh, whether they are aliens or whether they're demonic spirits, don't doubt for a second. I, I've seen enough stuff. I don't talk about this a lot, but I've, I've, I've studied it and read it even long before I uh, came to recognize the truth of Scripture. Uh, I read The Morning of the Magicians. It was a book about Adolf Hitler's regime and all the occultism that was there. Um, uh, Steve Quayle had a great book, came out a couple years back, called Empire Beneath the Ice, talking about it and the pagan connections. Werner von Braun, Operation Paperclip. Oh, yeah. The more you study about the, the satanic history of the Nazis and of things that were happening with Operation Paperclip and MK Ultra. And um, our Nazis were better than their Nazis, you know, Werner von Braun's famous quote. Uh, the more you recognize this has been going on for a long time. And, yeah, um, there are people that were literally channeling demonic entities. Maybe they thought they were greys or whatever other kind of aliens might be. But I ain't nothing new under the sun there either. Okay. Let's, uh, let's close then with the Aharonic blessing. Remember that Yahuwah spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak and turn to Aharon and his sons and say to them, This is how you bless the Benai Yisrael. Say to them, May Yahuwah bless you and keep you. May Yahuwah make his face to shine upon you. May Yahuwah lift his countenance upon you and give you his shalom. Amen. And thus he said, they shall put Shami, my name, on the Benai Yisrael, and I myself shall bless them. And may it be so.